0: Today's episode is brought to you by the Usher Cup World Club Challenge about to kick off on the 19th of January through to Sunday the 22nd of Jan. It's going to be skits, $7,000 for first prize, male and female equal prize money with competitors from Australia, New Zealand, America, France, Japan, Indo, Hawaii. The first of its kind, it's going to be so mental, held up there at Snapper Rocks, hosted by the Snapper Rocks Riders Club. Holy smokes, it's a skits event. We were there commentating last year. We'll be there again commentating this year. Cannot wait for it to kick off. Get on up there. Jump on the Usher Cup website, ushercup.com. Have a suss. It's a full-blown stonker of a surf contest. Even better, the event has a massive charitable push. It supports a lot of people and... Charity networks in need up there around the Gold Coast and Queensland and New South Wales. It's, it's an incredible event. Uh, Theo, the guy who puts it on, is a fucking icon, and uh, we're frothing to be a part of it. And don't forget the surfing. Like, holy smokes, last year was skits. Nathan Hedge, Sheldon Simkus, Dexter Muskins, like the full underground core lords from the zone and elsewhere, now broadened uh, to include... The global field, I'm sure there's going to be some high-end surfers coming in from Indo, from the Padma Beach boys, and uh, elsewhere on the planet. Super psyched to be a part of it. Tap in. Today's guest on Call Lords is Mick Waters, an underground independent surf filmmaker who's made a handful of heartfelt, awesome surf films, uh, comprising some of Australia and the world's most decorated world-weary tube pigs. Uh, We're going to hear more about various films that he's worked on over the years. He's also an absolute Australian classic from Western Sydney, originally played, uh, I believe it was reserve grade for the Balmain Tigers uh, rugby league club here in Australia, in Sydney, a a massive club. Uh, He was there at a time with... A handful of the all time greats, probably the greatest team they ever had. He was in the grade just below him. Um, And yeah, you know, has surfed to a a very proficient level somehow, despite growing up in Western Sydney. We'll get into that. And, uh, you know, just a a real kind of quintessential Aussie bloke, yet with. As we you know, know about this archetype, very complex as well. We have uh, a great blue-collar upbringing and a great personal and, and family story to go along with all the stories that he's documented himself in the underground surf culture over the years. Really enjoyed this chat. In some ways, it felt like I was talking to myself for a couple decades down the track. And uh, yeah, just a full-blown quintessential core Aussie battler. With a great eye and ear for storytelling, ain't that swell? Presents, cool lords. Yeah, you were just telling me about that trip to One Palm with uh, Timmy Turner, Travis Potter, and and, and Brett Schwartz. Iconic journey. I remember the edition in Tracks magazine. I remember the film. Uh, second thoughts, one of the best and and Travis is a mate and we'll have him on the podcast shortly but you're actually, you had a different perspective of that trip, you were on the boat that kind of uh, blew him up right, I think, so Jason Childs took the photo of was it Travis that got the cover of Surfer and kind of blew their cover yeah I don't
1: know I don't know who got the cover of uh, yeah I don't know who got the cover of um, Surfer, I know Kobe got the cover of tracks. Right. From the right. But we um back in those days I didn't wasn't buying the mag, so I can't remember you know who was on Surfer, but I imagine that it would have been him. he took the photo. So yeah, we were on the trip for tracks with Steve Clements, Kobe Aberton, Dylan Longbottom, Asher Pacey. Damon Harvey, DC Green was riding and Childsey was taking photos because he was living in Indo then. And um, we were actually at the airport and we'd all come from different places. I was there to shoot video. We'd all come from different places. And Kobe had been uh, delayed and they were saying, oh, we've got to wait for Kobe. He's going to be here tomorrow morning. And Childs, he's pulled, just said, no, we've got to get there tonight. We've got to be on, you know, the swell's coming tomorrow morning. And then he organised for a jet boat to ca- to bring Kobe out. So wow. the, We kept on going, and um, and it sort of played out that that was the right call because we got there the next morning, and the right was on, and Kobe didn't get there till later in the afternoon, mm. and that was on a jet boat, so we would have missed the, the right swell, uh, the swell for the right. And um, when we were actually at the airport, we met this guy, and he I think he I think he was pissed. <laughs> And uh, big, thick glasses on. He's coming up and he goes, oh, where are you guys off to? You know, and he's American accent. And the boy's are like, oh, we're going to Paniton. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm going to be there. We're going to be there tomorrow. And he, the boys are just looking at him going, who's this guy? So it was Timmy Turner. Yeah. And I think he'd ha- he was a few uh, bintang long necks under. So, like, you know, he was a bit loose. And they're just going, who's that guy? You know, like, we just, did, just thought he was some random guy just trying mm. to chat. And then... So we go there on the big boat. We went on, I think it was the Nomad, and we got there the next morning.
0: Is that one of Cruden's boats, Matt Cruden? Might have been on that boat. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, carry I don't on. know. I th-
1: was it a guy named Brad from WA? Maybe he had it back in the day. I don't know. This this is two thousand and two, mm. so memory's a bit gone. But um, so we're there, and you know it's all playing out like Childsie said it was. And I'd met Charles in nineteen ninety four, and pretty much he had indo-covered so we get there and then we see this little chicken boat coming around the point you know coming from up one palm end and then just sort of ch- trekking across the bay and then we're like fuck man that's that dude with the glasses he's here <laughs> and we're like what? and he's like hey how he's going and he wasn't loose then you know like he wasn't mm. and then he just goes out there and charges and they all did like uh brett schwartz who, who's a natural footer and travis on his backhand and timmy Just maniacs, and then they sort of they told us a story that they'd been camping on the island. Uh, They'd been back into Jakarta to get supplies, and that's why they were there, or that's why Timmy was there because he was picking somebody up from the airport or doing something there. And (coughs) as it played out, we seen them, you know, going in on the island with their surfboards and getting supplies and hanging in there, and just like made it blew my mind. And then they left. To get more supplies, and some of the boys from the from the our boat actually left with them. And then there was only for the big day when one palm worked. It was eight to ten feet. There was only Asher and Damon left on the boat. Wow! So Clemo, Dylan, Kobe had all left.
0: All the natural footers.
1: Yeah, but they would have handled it because I got charged <laughs> but um, there was only DC left he had a dig and Charlie and I were there to do- document I didn't have a board and, AB's
0: um, backside out there too yeah and
1: yeah. then um, and the boys turn back up here comes Timmy and Travis and, and Brett on the night on the day the morning of early morning of One Palm they turn up and they're surfing it in steamers and it just yeah it just blew my mind so yeah that's in the film I believe
0: can't wait to watch that man because um, yeah I think so what year was that, 2002,
1: you said? I'm pretty sure, yeah. I've just been in contact with Kobe because I handed over the footage and I don't think it ever came out in anything. But oh. I, um, I put the one – I didn't put the whole trip in my film. I've only put the one palm section mm. in and a little bit of the right because mm-hmm. um, there's other waves there but they weren't as, you know, as heavy and that's not what the film was about. There was one section of it. Um, so it sort of talks – I interviewed Steve Cooney, mm-hmm. who found Inda. Yep. Uh, found Ulus with Albie Thousand and all those Yep, boys. he's been on the program. Yep. 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 So um, there was this sort of connection. I was trying to get his uh, insight into, you know, when they first found Ulus and how that played out and how it is, you know, at that point finding waves, you know, like the, the thought going into it, the, the adventure, the journey and, you know, getting there on a day when it's just going off and there's hardly anyone else, else in the water and just the similarities and differences. You know, they were at Ulus in 1972, I think it was, and mm. this was 2002, so it was 30 years after. You know, lots changed, but... Wow, the year of the bombings too. Yeah.
0: Did that Had that just happened or was it about to happen?
1: I don't think it had happened. Oh, no. Yeah, no, wow. it was after. Mm. So, yeah, I just had... That was my angle for that section in the film. And And I just, after listening to Kobe's uh, podcast with you guys, Mm. I actually touched base with him and said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I actually apologised to him because I I didn't realise that... Well, I, I remember it happening. And it was on the last day when those boys were going. I was supposed to get some lifestyle and interview stuff with the boys. So I'd put the... Cameron Kobe and and um I said to him and they were packing and they were a bit rushed and I said hey I've just got to get an interview and I said hey say hello to him say hello mum you know and I didn't know his story Mm. about his mum and he sort of just looked at me Mm. and I just went okay that was weird and I didn't know Mm. and it wasn't until I heard his story on your podcast that I actually touched base to him Mm. with him and apologized to him he said, no, nah, mate, it's all good. You know, mm. Like, But I just needed to say that because mm.
0: I didn't know his situation. Mm. and um, A lot of people don't. like Still didn't right up until, I don't know, I guess if they listen to that podcast, but I'm, I'm sure he's still being judged by the metrics of fucking middle-class wankers all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and I actually apologize. I said to him, and I said, mate, I wasn't much of a fan after that trip. Mm. Yeah, um, And it wasn't his fault. It was just the way that the trip played out you know, he turned up, we, we had to wait and then we did, Charles he decided that we wouldn't and we left and then he came back in and then he got the cover and left early mm. and it sort of played out that it was, that the other boys that stuck the trip out um, didn't get as much coverage and I was sort of a bit like, oh, that's that's maybe why I put that in the film as well just to give Damon and, and Asher some coverage that I thought they deserved that they didn't get because mm. I think i I think from my memory as the trip played out that it was all about the right but they didn't really talk about the left so you know and that wasn't kobe's fault that's just the way the media portrayed it Mm. yeah and um but i apologized to him he's like mate not a problem it's all good you know and we've touched base since you know about all this and i said man i've got some old footage of you from that trip and he said i've never seen it so once i get back from tassie i'm going to convert it and hand it over to Mm. him so you know it's all good it's 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 played out, but, you know, I just I just needed to apologise to him that, you know, I didn't know about his mum and his situation. Yeah, difficult. I was judging on something that I didn't know about and, um, and it wasn't his fault that he got the cover.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, look, um, reality of people who come from those kinds of backgrounds is that they are difficult to be around for a lot of their lives and, you know, through the intense breath work that he does, he's now fucking about the most reasonable, loving person yeah. you ever like to come across. You yeah, know.
1: And, and, yeah, and I got that from that podcast, and I was like, "Well, you know, and I reached out to him, and I reached out to you, and just to thank you for, you know, great podcast, and um, yeah, we're here today, so it's, it's all good.
0: Man, I'm interested to know uh, what Steve's take on the changes of Indo were.
1: Yeah, well, he, obviously, you know, how people are getting around... Um, you know your form of transport to get there. Right. How long you're there for? You know, it's a it's a bit of a hit and run mission. Mm. Where you can dial up the swell and know when to be there and all that sort of business. But on those days when it all comes together, there's a lot of effort still, mm. and the waves don't change. Yeah. And w- and when you you know put in that effort to get to somewhere and you get rewarded like that, and there's maybe a you know four guys in the lineup. Feels was pretty good. So that was his take. And I asked him how he felt. You know, he was 14. And the surfing, you know, I've, I've said this to a couple of people. I don't know if they agree. But uh, the surf, the, the best surfing I've seen in that movie is Steve Cooney and Chris Brock, in my opinion. Um, really underground guys. And, like, uh, Steve Cooney was 14 years old when that was happening. No leg ropes, ripping at Angowry. And then on his backhand, you know. With a guy, Rusty Miller, surfing mm. on that first day who was a big known, like a big, uh, well known big wave rider. And here's this guy from Narrabeen or Warriwood, wherever he was living, just, yeah, just <laughs> playing with it. Yeah, like, yeah
0: keeping pace with one of the yeah. greats, pretty wild, fucking hell. You
1: know, and just, and, and, and his, his input into surfing is oft, often underestimated, but his photography, I don't know if you're aware, of, like he's just—they've just put out a book on him. But mm. some of his lifestyle shots are etched in my brain, like from mm. from me growing up in the '70s and reading all those magazines and seeing those images, not not really taking notice of the name, but knowing the photo. And then now he's had this book come out. I think is it is it unearthed? Or? Yeah, that's yeah. it, man. Yeah, I got it. Um, and then just seeing, going, man, that's Steve's photo. That is, and it's not. So much surfing photos, it's lifestyle stuff. It's the, the moments in between. Yeah, mm. really captured it well. And yeah, and I spent some time with him because uh, Matt Jai and I helped edit Ulu 32, which is the film that Steve put out. And um, yeah, Steve employed me to go through from my knowledge of spending, a, you know, a fair bit of time in Indo. Um, just letting him know of hey i saw this session in a in a film this is the filmmaker come and let's chase it up so that's that was my job and then i i did the pre-edit and put it all you know in a timeline and then we took it to matt jai who was working for tracks then and he helped edit the film.
0: Man, it's a classic film. I used to always see it kicking around, like burnt copies of it in Indo, in Bali when I was there. And I don't think I've ever watched it, but. Uh, I've got some in my office, oh, mate. Perfect. I'm going to
1: give one to you because I've actually <laughs> got them on my <laughs> website still because Steve, see? I was distributing it after it came out for Steve. So I've still got some copies there, mate. I'll give you one.
0: Amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, just what you're saying about, you know, Tracks Magazine in the 70s kind of, uh, you know, being etched into your mind. Actually, that trip you were on is etched into my mind uh, to One Palm and Apocalypse. Uh, you know, I must have been 15 at the time and right in the throes of my full-blown addiction to surfing. Uh, and just reading, you know, it was comical too to think that like, my Catholic grandma from Forbes, God bless her, you know, she got me uh, a subscription to the Surfer's Bible, of course, wow. probably thinking it was some pious, uh, wholesome no, <laughs> magazine. No, I, I remember
1: my dad, like, I had them and he found them one day and started reading it. He's like, you're not reading this shit? And just threw them, mate, burnt them. <laughs> like, old school book burnings, yeah. Like, you know, when they were the, the, uh, the paper format, like mm, the big ones? Yeah, yeah. And then there was uh, Dr. Jeff. And, um, you know, I remember the cartoon sort of logo of him was like a penis and all these different things around this guy's head mm. and just some of the letters. And, you know, there were some really left of centre, like, um, stories and mm. bits and pieces. So, you know, my dad would, as we are driving from Western Sydney up to my grandmother's at uh, Wyong on the central coast, it used to take four and a half hours sometimes because you'd have to go on the old road. So he'd stop off at this little devonshire tif- uh, tea place cafe he'd have a couple of beers and my mum would have you know and me and my brothers are just they just let us out of the car because we were belting each other or whatever you know so he ended up buying us some surf max just to keep the peace yeah mm. not knowing that you know surfing world was really like nice nice imagery and nice stories whereas tracks was not that you know mm. at that stage so he didn't know what he was doing. But then once he read one, he's like, you're not reading that shit and like, burnt them. And it was so funny. But yeah, just all that imagery for, for me is what put me on a path to be a surfer. And then years later, you know, try and be a filmmaker. You know, so,
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And when I think back to it, the, the two stories that really, you know, created that curiosity and intrigue in surfing were both by DC Green. One being uh, Terror in Saltbush, I believe. He went to, uh, I won't even say where, but yep. with Mick Campbell and Andrew Ferguson and someone else and they just got harassed with shotties and knuckle dusters was,
1: by a um, bunch of lunatics. Bill Alexander, the photographer
0: on that. He's from Probably. the Central Coast, yep. I think. I, yeah. It's a classic. It's a hair-raising. And I actually was chatting to DC. i got to give him a buzz and I'll get him to read that story on The Greatest stories never told. It's a fucking rip-snorter. And then that one uh, in Indo... With just the, the, the depiction of the pure feral existence that those guys were living like a putrid, heavy fucking lifestyle, malarial jungles like, you know, Travis has got cerebral malaria and, uh, you know, I imagine most of those guys do. Uh, I mean, I know Timmy ended up with staff, but supposedly that was from surfing back in Huntington. But, fuck, you do wonder, like, what they, what they contracted in the jungle. And, oh, man, it's just a, it was just such a wild depiction of dudes roughing it. I, I'd never seen it before. And it, it really made me realize where the bar was in terms of surf travel. Like, if this is what the – you know, these guys fucking ripped so that they were the, the top guys, in a sense, of the underground. And I'm like, mm-hmm. if that's what they're doing, then i will going to be willing to do the same. And, you know, I, I pretty much did and, and still do it, it. I don't have – never had much money, so – that's been the method of surf travel, um, and it's fuck, man. I, I wouldn't recommend doing it any other way. Like, if you want yeah. to do surf travel properly, I think yeah. um, the the less money you have, the better it is. Like, and, yeah. and they can, you know, in those and wherever you go, they can they can smell it on you, like whether you got coin or or not. It's like a sixth sense they have, and um, you know, the the more kind of Hessian and uh, low income, you are the better you get treated. I find, and the yeah. more authentic the connections are. Yeah,
1: and I've um, through you know documenting surfing, I've sort of experienced both sides. I definitely prefer what you're talking about. It feels more authentic, and and the rewards feel better when you get the waves. I understand why not all people want to do it or can't do it. Or choose not to, um, but I just remember um, being heavily influenced by um, reading those stories and, you know, a couple of my favourite surfers were Jim Banks and he used to have a, a uh, column in Waves and, uh, you know, I used to see his image, you know, the images of him and, and the stories about him and then also the early um, movies that Brooks Sylvester made yeah, idyllic Indo Indo illusion, all those ones which Kobe talked about in his podcast.
0: Man, I'd love to see them. I'll, I'll, I'll get but on to Brook because I only saw his of stuff. I was probably too young to. Uh, yeah, to get a copy. look, it was really stuff.
1: it was really gritty. You know, yeah. those boys were roughing it. Yeah, um, and he just happened to be one of their mates and was just there documenting it. Um, and I love that sort of stuff. So I uh, and I, I find myself gravitating to those sort of people, those characters that maybe the surf media or people don't know about. I like to tell those stories mm. um, because it's not just, you know, the top, I don't know, I, what is the WSL, you know, like the professional surfing population is maybe the top 0.5% of the popula- surfing population. Um so I like to try and at least give those people a bit of representation and, and tell their story and show what they can do, you know. Um, and it's not always about just the surfing, mm. know, the surfing performance. It's how they get there and their backstory. And you meet those characters when, you, when you're when you doing that style of travel. And to be on that trip and just see the full contrast, you know. We are on the, the boat with the aircon and they're, on the chicken boat, for just for those few days, because there was back-to-back swells. But they'd been, sp- they were spending months there. Like on, and that island is just there's basically five metres of shoreline, sand, like it's reef sand, and then just full jungle. And they're just living there, like just th- maybe weeks on end until a swell comes, because it's maybe not the most
0: consistent island for waves. You know? Yeah, well, Trav was explaining to me like they did do that, but they also would go back to Jakarta and just have these wild benders at Stadium Nightclub, which I'll be getting to spill the beans on. But you probably heard about Stadium. Did you go to Stadium back in the no, day? No, no, we
1: basically came in one, um, one afternoon, got on, got, flew in all into Jakarta Airport from different places, all met. Yeah, Kobe's not going to be here, so Charlie organized that we went down to the harbor, got on the boat and shipped mm. out that night and pretty much the same sort of thing, maybe got home early one morning after we extended the trip right at the end for the one palm swell. So yeah, no nightlife for us. We were basically, you know, a few bintangs on the ba- on the boat, but nah, nah, no no uh, no not but I could Im- those guys are loose and it's funny um, I did another film which is there, which I've given you, is uh, Little Black Wheels. And um, so I've driven across with my pregnant wife and our daughter and our dog at that stage. And um, we're in the Northwest Desert. And here I am, and I run into Travis and Brett they're like, "Hey, what's going on?" So I've got a bit of footage of them in there, not much because they were only there for a week or two, like our, you know. But it was great to see those guys on the other side of the planet again, yeah, doing what they do, yeah, and um, just camping with another one of their mates. I can't remember his name, and just doing what they do, you know, just just low key, low footprint. Mm. You know, they've got stickers on their boards. They go, they get a little bit of money, maybe some free wetsuits, but it's all off their own uh, funding. And I was talking to them about Timmy, and they're like, oh, my goodness, he's so sick. And I'm just like, oh, what? So, mm. yeah, it's just good to see that, you know, I, I don't think those guys will ever change. The, and, and the people that travel like that, it's just... Part of their makeup.
0: Yeah, and it's great that you're documenting it because, uh, you know, although the, the mainstream surfing community might not be aware of these characters, you know, the top guys are. you you're Slaters and, and Parkers, and uh, they know exactly who Travis Potter, who Camel is like, yeah. and they have all the time in, and respect in the world for him. Um, outdated children, classic film, really heartfelt, really, you know, just a really good uh, documentation of the... The stripped back and and quite pure lives that some of these underground guys live and I guess that's your your MO as a a filmmaker is documenting that underground surf culture which is sick man it kind of needs to be done but it's also a fine line between you know a lot of these people live in pretty uh, obscure locations where the waves are kept under wraps and you know filmmakers and storytellers are not always yeah that welcome yeah. there but uh, at the same time if you do it the right way um, then you, you will be welcomed back with, with open yeah. arms well uh,
1: yeah that's that's a good point because um, you know I want to return there like first and foremost I surf yeah so I'm a surfer um, I happen to document surfing and I want to go back there as a surfer and I want to be welcome so I always try you know you're not going to always please everyone. So I try to never reference where I am, uh, never say where it is, don't give away landmarks. If you, if you know the wave, you know the wave, mm. like regardless. Um, and then I always try to, well, always do, um, you know, edit the piece on the surfer and then send it to them and make sure that they're happy with it before I put anything out. That's it, man. That's got great. They've got to, they've got to sign off on it. Oh. You know, They've got to be happy with how they're portrayed, what they're saying, what I'm saying about them, blah, blah, blah. You it's know? a
0: funny way to operate. I've taken this up recently to where, um, you know, strictly speaking, it's not really allowed in the uh, journalism trade, but fuck, the journalism trade's a fucking G up anyway. It's an absolute piss take of a profession. Um, so you may as well just, especially in surfing where, you know, there's very little at stake apart from, keeping joints under wraps so you may as well just have your hands on and 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 clear it with them i often clear stories with people like i'm not out there fucking trying to expose or muckrake some fucking pro surfer or yeah yeah
1: so you just you know and like i said you're not going to keep everyone happy there's that one disgruntled local that's going to always be disgruntled about something oh of course um you know whatever i can't change that so Um, But, you know, if you're telling what you think is an important story and the surfer's happy with it and you you haven't given away where it is, you know, I don't see what the problem is because, you know, there's been many filmmakers in the past and there will be in the future that'll just do whatever, you know. Um, But I try to have a sensibility and a a sensitivity to the people and the place um, because I want my kids, you know, they all surf. So I want them to be able to go to these places and, you know, not um you know just tread lightly mm. you know whether it be you know in the water or on the land take your rubbish with you and you know don't bring your rubbish out in the water just be respectful because you know we're all travelers in this world you know we're and, and we're all passing through somewhere at some time mm. you know because otherwise you just if you're just at home every day not traveling it's pretty boring so you you've got to be mindful of how do I feel when I go to a place and that and I'm not respectful or when someone comes to my place and they're not respectful yeah like put yourself in that mm. in that local's position and you know and and like you said if you're traveling low key and you're nice they're nice that's all a bit of a front yeah 100% so
0: you just especially in some of those more obscure locations actually screaming out for you know, fresh butt in the community to hang out with and connect with is yeah. what
1: I've found. Um, yeah. So, you know, and it's just, at the end of the day, it's only surf films. It's not like curing brain cancer or something. It's just, you know, you try and work with the surfer and work with, the, you know, the person you're uh, portraying and try and tell a nice story. and um, it. You know, tell their truth, you know. And, mm. and, and, and like you said, you know, Parco might know Camel but 99% of the surfing population doesn't. And, you know, like through my travels in Indo, the first time I went to G-Land, I saw Camel there. And I'm just like, who's this dude? Like paddling wide with a helmet on, going right up the point and just getting shacked past everyone and then just would do the same thing and then disappear. And they go, man, that's a Camel. He lives in the jungle. I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, seriously, are you tripping? <laughs> you know, I, was, uh, I had rats running over my feet in the little... At that stage... The huts were right on the point at G Land. I'm not not even sure what, maybe up at Kong's. And I remember waking up the first night and having rats running over my feet and going, What the, you know, what's going on here? And I realised that they were going for my muesli bars because I always take a stash of food, you know. (laughs) So I had to put my muesli bars in my my bag and then put my feet up on my bag and then really make sure the mosquito net was in tight in under the mattress. Yeah. Yeah, the first night, and he's he's sleeping out in the jungle wherever he was sleeping, I don't know. But I've talked to him about it, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah it was pretty heavy." And you know, he's got some good stories, but just that is you know, next level. That's like Timmy and those boys.
0: Yes, yeah. and they cross paths. Travis and Camel have camped together for a while, and you know it's it's so cosmic that the two greatest kind of Indo ferals ended up camping out together and their yeah. mates, and yeah, I love all that stuff. Um, And, I mean, run us through some of the characters in Outdated Children. And before I forget, actually, tell us where we can get these films because they are, you know, your you quintessential kind of cult surf cinema, so it's easy to miss them. You've yep. um, got Believe, uh, Little, Black- Little Black Wheels and Outdated Children and, yeah. and, and all your films for that matter. Yeah, well,
1: you we can get them on uh, my website, which is littlehouseproductions.com.au. Um, I've got old-school DVDs because when those first two, Believe and Little back Wheels, were made, there was no online platform. You know, you basically got a physical DVD. Mm. Uh, VHS was out back then. So I've still got some DVDs of them, but you can get on to my website and also uh, rent them for a day or download them, which nice. is, you know, that sort of... Uh, some I find with surfers that... You know, there's old surfers that like to read a physical magazine and play vinyl and want a you know, a hard copy of something.
0: Hundred percent. I'm just yeah. looking at these licking my lips, going, "Yes, it's so good to have a hard copy with the cover art and all that stuff." Is yeah. is actually a really important part yeah. of the experience.
1: And I liked that as a kid. You know, growing up listening to vinyl and, you know, flicking through the gatefold and looking at the artwork. Just going, oh my goodness! Whilst you watch, you know, reading the lyrics and listening to the album, I'm a bit like that. So. And there's a lot of surfers like that, especially older surfers. Uh, but, you know, the, the technology is there that you can get onto the website and then download it, you know, rent it for a day and then download it and then put it on your device and watch it wherever you, you know. And I've got some T-shirts and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's pretty low-key, you know. Mm. Oh, I think I've got 17 followers on Instagram or something. So <laughs> it's, just <laughs> it's just, you know, they're low-key films and um, the surfers in them. You know, there's some... Famous people in each of the films, mm. but they're not the stars. You know, it's more they're in there because I've run across them, uh, or I've come across them on my travels. That's the um, that's the bridge. The mate. drawbridge. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was like, well, it's a blue sky day. I was thinking it was thunder, and then I think I was thinking it was a landslide. I don't know what the fuck was yeah, going on. No, be. that's
1: the uh, rickety bridge. That's that's the the uh, watchdog, mate. That's when you know people are coming. Yeah. So, yeah. So like you know, there's there's some famous people in the films. And you come across them in your travels and you get to document them. But, you know, that's not just what's in the film. It's more the, the underground sort of people whose stories haven't been told.
0: Mm. And the stories are yeah. better, man. When you when you, when you you got to fucking earn a crust to, to pay your way and, and, and skimp by, uh, yeah. they're, they're very character-building experiences. There's so much more character, I find, in the underground guys compared to the, you know, well-paid, yeah. um, highly-touted, Young professionals and, and mature professionals. Yeah, no, well, no disrespect to those guys, yeah. but it's just a, a very different experience, and that they all have. I mean, everyone's got their own story, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. you can't really compare, but, um, yeah, it, it is a you know these everyday kind of working class, fucking, call lords are just yeah. classic.
1: Yeah, and often when you're um. Traveling similarly to them, you know, like, you know, with. Little back wheels. We we're in a uh, Volkswagen Transporter. In the end, my wife was seven and a half months pregnant. My daughter was two and a half, and we had our dog. And I, there was a guy that um I'd met. His name's Harry Banker. He was from Margaret's at that stage. I'd met him in Gland, and um he'd actually been run over one day, and there was a bit of a discussion in the camp that he, it was his fault, but he was basically paddling to the inside and this certain person ran straight over him and there was video footage of it and they were trying to justify that harry w- and anyway uh, these certain people in in the Gland camp like sort of got around him one night and trying to heavy him and as he
0: as they've after being run <coughs> over they're trying to yeah heavy he him just, into it he videos. sort of
1: yeah they said something to him and he sort of stood up to them and mm. and i basically said I got your back, mm. and my brother was there, and uh, one of our mates. And I said, "Mate, there's three of us here. We got your back." Mm. And he just looked and went full out at, at them. Didn't it? Wasn't a an altercation, but he got in, He he defended his right and his ground and stood stood up. And he actually come up to me and goes, "Man, I really appreciate." It. I said, "Mate, you know, whatever. It's all cool." So that's 1994 that happens in 2000, and I don't even know when we'll in the desert. I've come across him. Mm. He's like, fuck Mick. And I'm like, hey, Harry, what's going on? And he goes, man, I still remember you sticking up on me. Mm. I'm like, oh, that's cool, mate. It's just, you know, what you do. He came across, he came to camp one day and looked at our camp and went, man, you've got the shittest camp here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, really? And he goes, man, your wife's pregnant. You've got this little tarp off the side <laughs> of you. And he goes, man, I'm going to bring me, so he was staying at the bluff and yeah. we're at Nalu. So he comes, to, he goes, I'm leaving tomorrow, I'm going to drop the caravan off. And I was like, nah, man, you don't have to do that, we're good. He goes, nah, man, that's the shitter's camp, I'm going to. So true to his word, he drops off the caravan. So for the last two weeks that we're up in, because we are in, in, in the desert for six weeks, he drops us off this caravan, it was like luxury. And then uh, I returned it to him because he was literally leaving the desert, going back to Margaret's, getting on a plane and going indoor. Mm. So he said, and mate, the keys are under my step, you know, under the secret hiding spot. You can stay in the house and shower, you know, when you get down to Margaret's. So that's what we did. We took the caravan all the way back down and then, so that's the sort of stuff you run into, that sort of community. And that wouldn't have happened unless, you know, you're traveling in a similar way and mm. traveling with these characters in a similar place, in a similar style, that you get to hear their stories. And, you know, it, often I will spend time with the person weeks before they know i am got my camera gear there. Mm. It's not like, oh, well, um, you know, like, for instance, we were on that same trip, camped right next door to Dave McCauley and his family. So... um got to know them they they, they his he's uh three girls just loved my daughter ruby so they'd take they would babysitter and we've never had a babysitter so we we're just like what where's our daughter you know like we had this time to actually just you know and it was a few weeks in where i said hey dave do you would you mind being filmed you know like because i man you're a really nice family and i'd just love to do something if you're into it and he goes oh what are you thinking and i said well you know used to be a pro and he's number two in the world at one stage i said and you're up here now you're this family man you're the nicest one of the nicest human beings ever. i've ever yeah. met
0: they're they're an unbelievable family well
1: my, i want to be like dave McCaulay and his family Fully. when i grow up
0: yeah Fully. that's what
1: i think yeah um ellie laura bronte and jack rest in peace mm. you know just amazing people and that's all because of the parents mm and it was just really good to see Dave who's an ex pro who's not tainted by any of that like doesn't doesn't paddle out in the lineup and go to to the front of the line just just low key just nice just I, wholesome and and so he's in there and he's you know famous I guess in a way but there was no airs and graces with him he's just so you meet these people and you get their stories so you know you get to spend some time with them and then I approached them with the camera. Same with Camel. I'd met him and so a few meetings before I mentioned and he, you know, he was standoffish and even still he's standoffish, but that's Camel and that's great and that's him. Mm. So I, that's what I tried to do on the film, Outdated Children, is show that.
0: So good, man. The surfing sequences of Camel are mind-blowing. Um, surfing that huge, bummy backside and um, a left slab down there. I mean, I think he's... He, Last couple of times I've been down that way, he's kind of injured his back and hasn't been surfing so mm. much. But, I mean, talk us through, uh, I don't know, I'm assuming it was you who shot the, the bomby footage and, and that kind of stuff. Like, talk us through watching him do yep. his thing out there. It's fucking wild, kind of as wild as it gets, really.
1: Yeah, well, his whole life, and it has been for years, is just centred around surfing, you know, in a, in a very pure way. Um, he doesn't have much, but I guess he doesn't need much. Um, it's very pure for him it's just basically you know tides and swell and you know he, he's really knowledgeable he's actually really articulate and that's what i think a lot a lot of people don't know um he bodyboards and he bodyboards really good on certain slabs um he surfs finless I didn't get to show all of that because, you know, it's just a limited time and um, I just wanted to show one part of him and that's riding the bigger waves and it's often by himself. That's crazy um, that it's by it's, himself. Yeah.
0: It's fully like, I don't know, 15 to 20 foot or something. It's it, it's maybe bigger. I, I don't know how yeah, you... Yeah,
1: well, that day he wasn't but just on the other left, the left, in the you know, he's out there and... Um, it's the witching hour. It's dark and
0: oh, the slab. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's one of the you know it's not straight offshore. That's for sure. It's it's, it's no, kind of pretty evil.
1: Yeah, and there's lots of um, big things, submarine size. Yeah, out there. oh and, man, and, you know, and some yep. you know I'm oh. not going to give away where it is. And people, you know, but he he that's there's cause and effect of surfing those waves. And like you're mentioning, he gets in, he, he's been injured, and that's. From the surfing, um, and he doesn't have a lot because he doesn't want a lot. But mainly, his life is geared towards you know being there on that day, and you know, and, and it's not. Going into deep into the personality of the person, it's just one little aspect, you know, because, you know, to do a full story on Camel or any of these people, you'd have to, to, you know, take 45 minutes or an hour to show everything, you know, how they were brought up, why they're here, why they're there, you know, you're just showing one angle. But for me, it was just, it's just a very pure thing. He, you know, he lives that lifestyle. Not many people could do it. Do people agree with it? Not many people would. I don't know. It's just, that's Camel. So, Mm. Yeah, it's just very, um, I don't know, the guy's operating on another level. And when you meet those people, like he's a really, he's really heavily into surfboard design. He knows his surfboards. And even in that time when he was in g and you know, there's stories and I talked to him, he'd get, you know, the, the tail of one board and the nose of another board and, you know, rip the, and like reshape them together to, you know, make this sort of morphed... Frankenstein. Hy- yeah, hybrid mm. weirdness, you know, and, and he'd be out there ripping and you see there's footage of him at G-Land from that time and he was really stoked that Wayne Lynch introduced him into the film, like Wayne talks about him. And mm. there's a lot of respect there between Wayne, like... One of the first times, you know, I'd met Camel a couple of times, but then one time I was going out to surf that left. And, um, you know, he'd, he's like, hey, how you going, Mick? You know, and he's like, whose board's that? And I said, oh, it's mine. And he's like, is that a Wayne Lynch? You know, and I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, my goodness. He like, you know, full respect, you know. Mm. There's this admiration for Wayne and what Wayne's done. And, and he's like, oh, my goodness, that's a beautiful surfboard, Mick, you know. And then, um, I'll go out, I'll get a few waves. He's like, and he waits, you know, he's like, Mick, you surfed really good on that board. It goes really good, you know, like, and he's like the way he talks. And I'm like, yeah, come on, it's a magic board, this one. I've still got it. I still, you know, ride it. But, um. Then he saw that I could surf possibly. I don't know. I don't know his thought pattern. But then we got to document something with him and I gave him little black wheels so he could see my angle and then you get to spend some time and, you know, it all comes out in the wash. But he's just hes just a character, you know, and like Addie Jones, you know, in that film, Outdated Children, he's a character. And you meet those people like George Greeno and Addie Jones and Camel or whoever it is, and from the moment you meet them, you know they're operating on a higher level or a different frequency to us. Mm. Their thought patterns, the way they think of things, it's not like most people. Mm. I'm interested in that sort of stuff because it's not me. I'm too scared to do that. I'm too, you know, I'm not skillful enough to do that. I'm not, you know, so I sort of admire it. Would I want to, would I... Can I do it? No, <laughs> so I'll try and tell their story.
0: Totally, Addie Jones—he's the uh, the fella with the kind of raccoon tail beard, Oh, mate.
1: That dirty raccoon oh, yeah, fuck popping out of his wetsuit. Jeez. Yeah, no, nah, he's um he's next level.
0: Yeah, tell us a bit about that guy. He's uh, in outdated children and fire out, man. What a, like what a character. He's uh basically living on the edge of the world with the world's best permaculture set up and uh, waves out the front.
1: Yeah, well, he's I met. Addy, when I first moved up here, he uh, took over a surf shop from the late Ben King who owned a surf shop here in town. And um, Addy took it over. Ben had a, I think it was called the surf cave or something like that, I can't remember, but he was fully into surf memorabilia. So there was old single fins and old prints and old vinyl of, you you know, surfing. And Addy took it over and took over some of his stock, but then Addy introduced his take onto it and i think it was called earthly joy that was his label so it was single fins normal single fins but then bamboo and weirdness yeah and as soon as you talk to addy you just go man he's so he's a recycler he's a permaculture expert he's a surfer really good surfer shaper just thinks of things differently you go into a tip people see rubbish addy goes into a tip he sees gold um, in Outdated Children, he makes the f- entire surfboard from stuff that he's found at the tip. Yeah? Gets the fridge doors, hot wires the foam out of it, makes the, it sticks that together, that's the, the foam blank. Yeah, Gets um, cork floor tying, tiling, tiling, uh, VJ wall panels, some other timber, some polonia that he's grabbed and shapes it all up. Vacuum bags it all, shapes it all up and then glasses it and makes it a little surfboard. He's just, yeah, that's the way he does things. <laughs> and <laughs> and he, he dives, he fishes for his own fish. He's really low footprint on this planet. Um, he's been here. My two banana circles out here are from Addy. Um, some of my swale setups and fruit trees and some of my my chop-and-drop garden down near the stream. It's all Addy. Wow. You know, where I, I've always been that way inclined. Um, I had a Polish grandfather who, you know, was in a concentration camp, caught by the Nazis, come out to Australia, blah, 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 blah. But I always remember going into his backyard and he always had water catchment. He always had food growing. Mm. Um. Yeah, so... It's got to be I'm, done. Yeah, and I'm, I'm that way inclined. Uh, but then when you see Addy and people like that, I'm, I'm nothing, you know. We all aren't... Like, compared to what you can do, especially on, you know, I, I, we're here on an acre, the amount of stuff I could do, and I will when once my kids um, aren't at school and I aren't driving them around to sport and, you know, all that sort of constant dad taxi sort of, you know, I'll have a lot more time to get, you know, because a, a before we went on that trip around Australia for outdated children, so we went for three years, I had the full set up here, like veggie gardens, fruit trees, chickens, all that business. Um, but since coming back, the kids are all at school. It's it's a busy time. We've still got the fruit trees. We've still got, you know, the solar and the, the water and all that sort of business. But, you know, when you see somebody like Addie and just the little things that they do, it's inspiring because... They don't, you don't need much and you can produce a lot. And it's, I think, even more prevalent now or imperative or you know, being made aware that, you know, with COVID and being locked into the system, um, you don't need to be. You can be self-sufficient and do your own thing. Mm. And when you when you meet these people, Addie Jones, uh, Heath Josky, people like that that a surface you know that's the common you meet them through surfing but when you see that the way that they're setting up their lives they can be surfing and at home and producing their own food and capturing their own energy and their own water and you know making their own honey and all these things i'm into that you know so i, I like a beer and i like a you know to drink from a white can after i have my beers you know the gym beam but I like to look after nature and I like to grow stuff. And, you know, when you meet people like that, it's inspiring. Mm. And, and you actually realise, like, they've got it wired. Even though people, some people look at them and think that they're weird and why are you doing that for? And, you know, you can just go buy it. it there's a there's a, a satisfaction in travelling like that, like you mentioned with those people like Timmy Turner and that, the satisfaction you get when you get those days. It's And it's not the destination it's the journey mm. and growing your own food it always tastes better than 100%. the stuff you grab from the supermarket
0: yeah well it hasn't been marinated in glyphosate and shit so that helps and, yeah uh,
1: yeah and you know it's with, and i think in this day and age I, I, i've always just like to keep things simple you know there's already enough head noise going on up here so i just like to keep things simple and you know if i can you know and if i can live like my grandfather i'll be happy you know he was a good man so
0: that's it man it's a whole another layer of the human experience to be totally enmeshed in in growing stuff and the cycles and the seasonal cycles and um i mean full credit to all the migrant populations that come to australia and, and brought that culture with them i'm not saying we didn't have it here already but uh, it is very yeah. common when you go out um, to Western Sydney or, you know, even the inner West to, to find yeah. entire backyards that are just teeming well, yeah, with fruit it. and vegetables, you know, on a quarter acre block. It's yeah. mental.
1: So my grandfather was Polish and it was weird. Like the front, of the, the front yard before the house, which he built with my uncle, was all roses and chrysanthemums, so he would sell them. In the next bit of the backyard was his plums and apple trees and all that sort of business then there was the then there was a fence gated off area and then that was his veggie garden potatoes cabbages broccoli all that sort of business yeah um then there was the incinerator then there was the and i've got it out in the yard is the the wheel that he used to sharpen the axes with to take the heads off the chickens and then there was a chicken pen and it was funny i always just thought the chickens for were for eggs but i I, get home to my grandmother's one afternoon and my brothers are there and we'd get off the bus and run in, hey, Nan, what's, you know, because she was always cooking. She goes, oh, chooka doodle soup. And we're like, oh, wow, because that was good. And then um, we're eating it. And I said, oh, Nan, there's a feather. She goes, and she points out the back. She goes, yeah, chooka doodle you know. So, and me and my brothers all looked at each other for a second. It was like a split second of, oh, shit, this is from one of the chickens from out the back. And we just, I just got rid of the feather and we just kept eating. It was just <laughs> like that realisation that, yeah, okay. And I respect that. Like, I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of vegans and a lot of people against, you know, um, eating meat these days. But if you're prepared to, you know, raise the chicken and the cow or whatever and then you're prepared to uh, process that, you know, like take the life and then eat it, and you're fully aware of that. Oh, like there's nothing wrong with it as opposed to like the convenience of just going to the supermarket and, and eating it and how those animals are treated.
0: Exactly. Well said. Couldn't agree more.
1: So, yeah. And that's just old school and I don't know. I'd, yeah, I respect that.
0: Yeah, and it's, I think it's time to return to some of those old-fashioned values facing up to where our food comes from and, and treating animals with respect, and you know, as Joe Rogan says, like animals in the wild don't tend to meet a happy ending. Like they're fucking getting ripped to shreds by something at yeah, some it's point.
1: That's law, so. law of the jungle, yeah. and if you're and if you're prepared for that, and you know that, you know, like when we go on the surf, you know, oh shark nets, no mate, it's not. Shark nets aren't going to stop us. We're going out in there, you know, like playground and. Mm-hmm. If you get taken by a shark, I, my, I wouldn't be a good way to die, but I'd be happy that that's the way I went because I'd be surfing and it's just part of it. So if you're in that circle of nature and that, you know, that the law of the jungle, you've got to be part of it. So if you're then part of it and taking your, the life of your own food and eating it, then I don't see a problem because it could be on the other end that you could be taken mm. by, you know, we're not walking around now with saber-toothed tigers and dinosaurs, you know. But even just, you know, driving cars—that's dangerous. Oh,
0: way more likely to get killed on your way to the beach than yeah, actually surfing.
1: Exactly. So it's just, you know, I, I just like to try and keep things simple. And when you see people living like that, I just respect it. So, yeah.
0: May you tell, uh, you know, underground characters stories in your films, but you're one of them yourself, man. Like, can you can you tell us a bit about your story? Where yeah. you grew up, what um, your folks did, that kind of stuff. Yep.
1: I was uh, born in Blacktown, so Blacktown Hospital. I'm not sure of the exact time frame, but I lived in Seven Hills for a bit with my grandmother and my parents, and then we got a house in Fairfield. So that's my earliest memories is we were in a rented house for a while, and then we bought a house. So... Yeah, um...
0: And this is, you know, for listeners who aren't from Sydney, this is the far western suburbs, really, yeah. or the, the, the western fringe of the city, so yeah, a long way from the coast, really. Yeah,
1: so it was, um... Yeah, back in those days, there was not much to do, so, you know, it wasn't um an extension of Sydney then. It was definitely the outskirts. Um, So, yeah, I'm the eldest of three boys. So I was born in 1970, so I grew up through the 70s, and, um... Yeah, my background was, my dad was originally a butcher by trade and then he became a meat uh, carter. And I actually asked him one day, I said, how come you got out of butchering? You know? And he said, because I, well, st- I still got all my fingers, son, you know. Mm. And I remember going to work with him, meat carting. He'd have two pigs on either shoulder and I'd, he'd give me something to carry. It was hard work, but it was honest, you know. My mum was a housewife until... Us kids got a bit older, us boys, and then she worked at TAFE. Um, like we, you know, I never had a BMX as a kid, but we didn't go without. It was a bit of a struggle, you know. Uh, we lost a house, I think, at one stage. We were renting. and But, so, yeah, so then lived around Fairfield for years, um, went to school at Fairfield, played footy there. That's where... Fairfield Sports High is that the... uh, no, it's uh, Fairfield Patrician Brothers. Right, There's a Westfield, yeah. Westfield Sports High, high which yeah. at that stage Probably there was exist, there did... was a Westfield High, yeah. but it wasn't a Sports High back then. Um, it was years later that it became that, and Fairfield Patrician, Brother, uh, yeah, Patrician, Patrician Brothers College Fairfield was like a, in that time one of the you know elite schools for football, right. I wasn't sent there to play football. I was just there because we lived in that area. Mm. And it just happened that my uncle was the first school captain and he he designed the the college crest. (laughs) Uh, My other uncle, he went there. He was college captain, so I went there. You know, it was sort of like, you know, we we lived in that area anyway, so that's where we're going. Um, It was a great school, you know, a lot of different races, 1,300 boys from Year 5 to Year 12.
0: Wow, yeah interesting my uh yeah i'm familiar with the area my family you know my uncle went to school at st greg's in Campbelltown, yep. which is a bit yep. i uh, guess they were the opposition yeah yeah and uh you know got, my family's from forbes and got family in penrith and yep. that, that, that region yep. and um you know a few of us made it to the coast but uh yeah i am very familiar with this culture and mm-hmm. rugby league and and rugby union are, are big parts of it and um you know they're a big part of my youth I went to a similar like uh, Christian Brothers school in the eastern suburbs but you went one step further mate and ended up playing for Balmain in what was the ARL back then like essentially uh, first grade rugby New
1: South Wales rugby league still back then yeah so, what years were these so 1990 91 wow so I played um under 19s and won President's Cup game for Parramatta because I'm a we're in Fairfield, we're part of the Parramatta catchment, okay. so I was a Parramatta junior. And I always wanted to play for Para because uh, I'm their junior, and my uncle played I'm pretty sure he played 53 first grade games for Parramatta. Wow,
0: so and this would have been in the, the golden age of Parramatta football with, with, well, with they, Sterling and Price and yeah, so Kenny and all that. In that
1: time, 86, they won their last grand final, but 87, 88, 89, 90, I, I, people might argue, but I would say that. Parramatta and Penrith had the, the, the biggest junior catchment at mm. that stage and were most probably winning all of those um, lower-level competitions like the Harold Matthews, the SG Ball. Late 80s, Canberra started coming into it and um, the Knights. So, you know, I played for Jersey Flag under-19s for Para and then was working at the Leagues Club and thought, you know, I'm going to play for Parramatta. But I uh, got a letter from the Tigers and went to a trial and got contracted that day by Keith Barnes, the old um, great that ran the club and I'm pretty sure he played for Australia. So, yeah, and then um, got a job at their Leagues Club and started the path there. And at that stage, they had just lost that grand final. 89, was it, to Canberra? Yeah, mm. so I went in there. So Wayne Pierce was there, Steve Edmard, Steve
0: Roach, Paul. Wow. Cirelli, so this was ice. the this was the team you walked into. Yeah. Well, fuck, we didn't yeah. walk into it. But like, uh, no, I'm I sure didn't. you didn't. I didn't, earn you I didn't that play. Team. <laughs> yeah, I didn't
1: play. But you know, like I was, um, I was happy to be there. Like, yeah. It was a great. You know, like Gary Freeman, Steve O'Brien, Gary Jack, yeah, uh, Clint Robinson. They had a good team.
0: Fuck, you know what, man? You, you've just named, like, Bruce what Bruce Maguire, Kevin Hardwick was still
1: there, you know, all those guys. Benny Elias was there at that yeah, point? Yeah, Benny Elias, yeah. Fuck,
0: these guys are living Wayne legends. Piers, and, yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, they're just names and we're just talking about a sport like it's any other sport. But I think what people have to realise if they're listening from America or Europe or even from fucking Vico or, or West Oz is, is what rugby league actually is like. I don't think... There's barely a rich person's played rugby league in the history of it. It's a fucking purely blue-collar and housing commission game, or at least it was when I was playing. And it is a... Uh, it's basically like a, a human demolition derby mixed hmm. with ballet and basketball or something like that, but... Yeah, it's it, Yeah, it's very working class. And I still
1: think now it is. You know, you you, you see the pathways and a lot of the um people are realizing you know i can make something from this i can set my family up you know like brian to- oh, just bought his parents a house mm. that's great mm. maybe his dad was a forklift driver maybe he was going to be a forklift driver if he you know living in the western sydney there from mount drewitt you know i lived in rudy hill like after we lost our house we couldn't afford to live in fairfield so we had to go you know 25 minutes west and we could afford to live at Rudy Hill, so I see. It, I see it. You know, like these guys have got a, an avenue to make something of themselves, and you know, it's look. It's a simple game, and
0: yeah, tuck think- you tuck you uh, tuck the ball under your arm and run full pelt at a brick wall of housing housing commission psychopaths, just like you, who are yeah. waiting to rip your head off. It's That's simple, it. It, but it's pretty it's- much anyone can do it. But uh, mate, there's a, a serious price to pay both physically and mentally for the abuse yeah. you put yourself through at an age when you're not really cut out to understand the long-term consequences yeah. of what you're doing to yourself
1: yeah and and it's but at that pure level like the game um it's a very simple game and i enjoyed that physicality i also enjoyed being in a team environment but it was the things that i learned from the game not so much the passing or the stepping or the running yeah it's the, the teamwork and the grit, the determination, the work ethic, sticking up for your mate, all those things that set you up for life. So mm. you come out of that. And, and some people don't come out of that, I think, environment or that competitive situation and, and maybe realize how much they have taken from it. Was I set up? financially from football no because i didn't play the top level you know the guys that are playing for australia and all that they get the money mm. but it set me up to know that um you know i retired by the time i was 25 the first time and i went to uni because i just went you know what i'm maybe not going to make this so but i always had that in the back of my mind that i could use my body to play football but if i didn't i still had a brain so i wanted to use that and you know, those, those characters, uh, those characteristics or those character traits that you learn from playing such a hard game, I think set you in good stead for life. You know, like you, um, yeah, when, the, fl- when the, f- the switch has to be flicked, I've still got it, you know, like, mm. um, I don't know, you get that from playing that game.
0: Yeah, there's a. You get used to doing things that you you don't want to do, and uh, that's yeah. one of the biggest lessons in life. And you can yeah. apply that lens to anything. You know, like if if you know that doing this thing's going to get you to a better place, but doing that thing sucks, you're able to do it. Whereas yeah. a lot of people don't learn that skill that they come up against something that is unpleasant. It might be good for them, but it's unpleasant, and they just won't do it.
1: They can't do it. Yeah, and I, I and I get that. I get that. I understand that. i I saw my my dad and my mum work hard you know for us boys and uh i saw my grandfather do that so there's that there's that um side of it of taking ownership as a man to be a provider and do what you've got to do and then there's also that you know physicality in the game that you get you would be injured you know like i got to the Tigers and I started training with the first grade squad and then I did my ankle and was out for 14, months, uh, 14 weeks, you know, missed the first eight games. So my first year was a bit disjointed, you know. So there's just a, through the adversity and overcoming those, you know, and maintaining your desire and your goal and not getting distracted. And, you know, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just think it's it's a really simple and I'm a big advocate of, children playing sport, mm. not necessarily being the best at what they do, but just doing it because, you know, there's so many distractions these days with social media and uh, devices that you see a kid that's tired from sport, they don't have time to, you know what I mean? They're not looking for trouble.
0: It's such a good point, man. I, I don't know where I'd be if I didn't have sport. My whole adolescence was just sport. That's all it was. It was football and yeah. surfing. And I uh, there was, there was cactus after that. You know, yeah, so you didn't have time to didn't have time to play up um, that kind of changed as I left high school. But um, man, like talk to us about some of these characters that you were playing with at the time or associating with, like these guys are iconic. Paul Sierrin's another one I imagine who was yeah, there was at the there. time. Yeah. Like State I mean March, what yeah. are your memories cool. of of these of these characters? They were fucking hard nut lunatics back in the day. Yeah.
1: Well, they were all, you know, that pack that was playing for the Tigers then. Um, ben Elias, Steve Roach, Paul Syrannan, Bruce Maguire, Wayne Pearce, all playing for Australia or State of Origin. Wayne Pearce retired after the first year that I was at the Tigers, but the rest of them there were still, and they would go into camp. You know, they and I, I remember training against the State of Origin squad. Jesus. They'd come to Leichhardt and we'd, you know, do a, a pose against them, you know, run through our plays and they'd run through our, their plays, you know. So you're running against Ian Roberts and uh, Graham Lyons and all those sort of, you know. Just going for it. Yeah, it was an eye-opener. It was great. It was so, it was just good to see it. You mm. know. I didn't make it. You know, maybe, look, on my day, I think I was a good player. And uh, but I wasn't. I'm not outwardly a person that would put myself out there. So maybe I stood back a bit. It's a personality thing. Um, and I was 83 kilos trying to break into a, a pack of possibly 100 kilo sort of guys. Mm. And I was a back rower, then I was a lock forward. So, but do I regret it? No, it was, it was great. And and once you think about it how many people I've played footy against. They have hundreds, 500 players, and then you think of how many that have got to play grade and then how many then went on to play first grade. It's not many. So, you know, I feel privileged to have gotten to that level. Could I have possibly done things differently? Yeah. Um, Do I regret the time there? No. But you know, if you look at the glass half full, if I look back and go, "Oh my goodness," you know, I should have done something differently. The only thing I do regret is I did have a chance to go and play for Souths, who I barrack for. Mm. So after um, uh, the Tigers released me, or cut me. They basically we had to go from twenty ones. So I'd, I'd played under twenty ones for two years, and I'd sat on the bench, reserve grade, and then I had I had to go to Alan Jones's. Uh, Newtown, like, warehouse to have a chat to him about next year's plans. Right. Any... So, yeah,
0: Alan Jones is the uh, the radio broadcaster who coached the Wallabies, probably the fucking worst union coach in the history of the game. Basically, as far as I know, single-handedly fucking was the end of the Ella's career the Eller Brothers careers who were, you know, basically the fucking goats from my area. Yeah. Um just the fucking punish of a human. But so yeah. and then so he, he had a he, little segue into Well he came bit, didn't he?
1: he came to the Tigers the second year. Mm. And um look he, he he was a really he was a really intelligent man and a really good motivator because he could tell your story and articulate it from any, you know, but he gets to the stage where that motivation motivational sweet speech will not overcome you know your lack of like strategy and preparation as a coach i dare say um so <laughs> i'm not trying to be diplomatic here I'm so really, uh, the guy you know never, what i'm saying well, of like, course he never played the game at
0: a high level it reminds me actually funnily enough of russell crowe when he bought Souths and he's and this is just as they're coming back into the comp and you know he's bought them all Armani suits and you know they're looking the piece but he's down there at training at Erskineville in Adam McDougal's ear trying to tell him what lines yeah. to run and yeah. McDougal's just going, mate you're a fucking actor get the fuck away yeah, I know. from me and and and
1: good on Russell Crowe for helping out Souths because there was years where I didn't have a team I didn't barrack for anyone when Souths got kicked mm. out of the comp I went to the march but I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to barracking for anyone so anyway I'll get. I get taken to Alan Jones's warehouse. You sent me a letter and then I get there and... I'm, oh, it
0: wasn't I'm, just you there. Yeah, it was. Fuck, he didn't give you... <laughs> <laughs> nothing funny happened, did it? Well... spiky drink. I'll, or, I'll
1: tell the story. Um, so I'm sitting in this, you know, I get... Like, fuck, this is four stories or three stories and um, I press the buzzer and... Um, Somebody talks to me through a box, and I get led upstairs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck, where am I going? And I go upstairs, and I'm sitting in a waiting room with all these famous people around. Um, you know, on the walls, photos. It's a waiting room, and then he takes me in. He, hey Mick, come in. You know, blah blah blah. And we go in, and he goes, Oh, so you know, I'd really like to talk to you about next year. You know, you know, you finished really good, so we actually made the semis in the second year. We played against Brisbane at the SFS, which is a big day. You got, to, you know got changed over at the uh, sydney cricket ground and then walked over and then played and you know we lost but you know it was a big day and i'm thinking yeah maybe uh, out of the last five games i've got three men of the matches and i finished the year good and then so he sends me this letter and i've taken the day off work or taken half a day off work i was working at tafe at in near central station and um get in there and he's like oh so i want to talk to you about next year and He goes, yeah, we're going to have to let you go. And I said, are you serious? I said, you've got me to take half a day off. You could have just told me in the letter. And I said, so what's the reason? He goes, oh, well, we've got all these, you know, these players that are playing in a similar position. And he reads out Matt Parrish, Cameron Douglas, all these players. And I go, yeah, 28 years old, 29, 30. I go, they've played four years of reserve grade, five years of reserve grade. I said, you've maybe put me on for five or ten minutes in, river, in reserve grade and you cut me at 21. I said, Get and he goes, oh, we can't really, you know, they've signed contracts. So I go, oh, mate, if, if you give me one year, I won't be in reserve, you know. I'll promise you, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll make the step. But he's just like, oh, we want you to go back to the second division, which was Metropolitan Cup, and we want you to put on some weight. And uh, oh, I was a bit low off you know so anyway i'll get back to i'm just like oh yeah okay whatever so he goes oh, i've got to go into town now where do you where are you going i said i've got to go to work and he, so he gives me a lift in his bmw with his driver
0: <laughs> <laughs> amazing
1: with the cap on and everything drops you off back at the meatworks drops me <laughs> off on the middle of broadway because <laughs> i didn't want him to drop me off at work so i'll get him to drop me <laughs> off and i get out and he gets out of the car and shakes my hand so everyone's looking and the, the driver gets out and sort of stands there. It's on Broadway, like there's no clearways there. Yeah. basically blocking traffic. And then mm-hmm. all these people, and he gives, goes give me you know the handshake and maybe possibly goes in to give me a bit of a you know, man hug and I mm-hmm. sort of just like shake his hand and go, okay. And then I hear somebody yell out my name. I'm like, fuck, I've been spotted. So one of the guys from work, because now it's lunchtime, spotted me and I just ignored them. <laughs> ran back to work, went upstairs and he goes, Man, is that you that just got out of like a BMW and I went, Oh, maybe and he goes, Who was that? Was that Alan Jones? And I'm going, Yeah And he goes, What what, what was going on there? Like that was a bit weird and I'm just like, No nah, mate, he just cut me from, you know, the tigers so and then I went and trialed for um the rabbits and um yeah, I had a manager and they contacted them and I went and trialled out and uh, the reserve grade coach then was Frank Curry and he said, okay, so we had a trial and he pulled three guys out and the three of us that were there that he talked to us, he said, I want you to come to training on Tuesday, just ring up the club on Tuesday and, you know, come in. We're going to train at Centennial Park. And um, so I ring up on the Tuesday and I remember Daryl Brampton who – I don't, not, he used to play for Souths and he was a development officer then I said oh yeah I'm ringing up to talk to Frank Curry because uh, I had a trial there on the weekend and he told me to ring up we've got training this afternoon he goes ma I've never heard of you if I don't, if I haven't heard from you you know I said oh can I just talk to him No, nah, mate I don't know who you are so I said but he told me to come to train and so he goes No. Nah. <laughs> so I just went like a scared little dog with my tail between my legs and just went, oh, okay, sorry, and just hung up the phone. I told my dad, he goes, mate, you get in the car and you drive to Centennial Park and you find them. And I said, no, nah, dad, I won't do it. Mm. And I didn't do it. Mm. And those two other boys that, that he called out that day both played first grade that year. Wow. So mm-hmm. that's the only regret from that whole that I didn't go there that day. But in as far as all the other stuff, like it was just a good time to be playing rugby league and you're getting paid for it. And that's all you wanted to do as a kid. Just want to play football, mm. but to to be getting paid and to be hanging around and learning off those people, yeah, it's great.
0: Amazing, amazing insight into some of the all-time greats that have ever played the game as well. And I mean, you surf well. So when did that come into the picture? Um,
1: I my so my grandparents moved up from Seven Hills to Rocky Point, then they moved to the entrance, so we that, which is on the Central Coast. So we that's my dad's mum. So we'd go up and my auntie was living there, and her boyfriend was from Bondi. Hmm. His name was Mark Wilkinson, so he um, had an old single fin, and and they said, oh, do you want to come to the beach one day? So I went to the beach, 7'2", single fin, heaper, but I stood up first day on the wash. Mate, that's it. The the switch just went, and I'm just like, oh. So he gave me the board. had the biggest fin fin gash in the top that went through from the top to the bottom glass. (laughs) So I didn't know about you know, fixing up dings. So I got some wax and just melted wax and just shoved it in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I still do that. And
1: then we ended up getting some fiberglass and the fiberglass was so far over the deck and it was black. We put too much hardener in it. (laughs) And then it was just like rubbing the shit out of my chest and it was taking chunks out of my stomach, you know, because I didn't have a wetsuit. So I rode that for a bit. Then there was a guy at Fairfield Pats that was in year 10, Paul Orchard. Sold me my first McCoy single fin, and a pair of scalloped um, legged quicksilver board shorts for fifty bucks, and then I bought a five dollar vest off him, long sleeve. So it's
0: probably a lot of money back then.
1: Yeah, yeah, but like, and then I saved up for a diver's watch, yeah, so I could be like those guys. And then it was basically um, if we would go up to my nans, strap the McCoy single fin to the. Volkswagen Beetle (laughs) and um, my dad would take me to the beach and my brothers started to surf so it was always dependent on school holidays if we were going up I'd get to surf if we didn't go up for the September school holidays we wouldn't get to surf and it wasn't until we we were old enough to get on the train and then we'd train it to Central and then get on the bus get off like five streets away from Aruba so we wouldn't get bashed and walk in or the Corso And then, um, yeah, then got a licence and then started to go back up the central coast, down to Ulladulla, you know, all those sort of places. And then bought a combi because I realised I was spending a lot of time driving, whereas I could leave work on Friday afternoon if I didn't have footy and then go away for the weekend and surf. But just that imagery and the feelings from surfing just was instantly, I was buzzing. And there was a few of us that surfed back in those days, and I just had my 35-year school year school reunion year 12 and a few of the boys go mate you still surf yeah what about you nah so i was one of the only ones that kept chasing it you know and like i said before first and foremost i was a surfer i loved it i'm not the best but i i chase it i love it Mm. just like anything you want to do it properly well that's it yeah give it
0: your best you know i think that also you know comes back to you know when you have early success in sports even football like it translates mm-hmm. in that respect where it's like you know if you want to do something like you want to do it properly yeah. and my dad was always big on you know even
1: like from the age of 13 to 17 or 18 i didn't grow so i was small it wasn't until 18 i shot up and i started doing weights that and he said son stick with it you're a good tackler or you're a good passer you know like the the foundations were there so your technique is good. So, I've always watched surfing. And then now I get to do it more. I can watch the way people surf. And go, oh, yeah, he's just sliding his hand here along the, to the mm. bottom turn and he's twisting it, you know. Before you had all the surf movies that you could, you know, all surf clips. So, yeah, just try to analyze technique for anything. Learning how to fight, you know, boxing, he was like, you got to hold your hands. This, you know, it's just technique. So, and then that will steer you in the right direction in whatever you want to do you know i think
0: yeah it's interesting too like going between those two cultures football culture surfing culture uh especially living up here in the north coast where it's it's surf mad you know you're living Mm. in full-blown surf towns and yeah it's something about surf culture like as good as it is and as enriching as it is um, there's a, a lot of kind of shortcomings in terms of what the, the culture can teach you or, or reinforces, you know, it reinforces a lot of selfishness and, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of at the core of it, sadly. And uh, I feel like when you don't participate in team sports, you, you miss out on some super valuable lessons, uh, particularly just around the idea of doing shit for other people and, and, mm. and how good that feels. And, um, you know, yeah, that's probably the main one. I mean, have, well, is there most, any...
1: Most definitely. Yeah. I don't think I could have said it any better. But I, I do struggle with it sometimes, like the, you know, being on the cusp of being in the industry or dealing with, you know, outside of surfing, um, the film industry and, and all that. It's very insular and and, and it's very, um, can be very, individual. you know, individual-based. Um, so... I like nothing more than working in a team and you get that from, I guess, playing footy from six years old to whenever Um, because it's
0: all a common. You're all there to try and win. Yeah, exactly. You've got a common goal and you're all pulling in the same direction and uh, in in surfing, it's a very dog-eat-dog culture. Like It's just the way it is. It's it's super hierarchical. It's super individualistic and um, they're pretty toxic aspects And, and when you've got an entire matrix in a town running on this yeah this kind of way of being this, this kind of phony hierarchy yeah. it can be a bit fucking
1: annoying but I've, yeah i've also found that i haven't been part of that because i didn't move to the beach till i was 28 after i finished uni so i've never really been a local um so i can sort of i get it i i, I can tell who the locals are from the first moment you paddle out you know And you just sort of get to negotiate yourself through that. And if you ever have to, you know, and you're a traveller always, so that's always been part of it. But I've also been a team environment. It's just, you just, um, yeah, you're not bigger than the team. There's no I in team. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a, there's a lot of ego. If if, if someone has been, um, say, a, a young surfer has been, treated in a certain way since a young age. Um, their perception and their reality is totally different to a person that hasn't, you know, that entitlement or the way they're treated or the way that they go through their life. And and you most probably even get that in rugby league now if, you know, the back in the day, you know, when I was playing, guys would have full-time jobs. Like David Brooks would run a concrete truck and then he'd come to training, mm. you know, with concrete all over him. So all day he's working with different people and then on the weekend he just happened to be a really good football player. Um, so there was no ego, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, that's a real noticeable difference. It's it's kind of mind-blowing how much ego you cop in the, the surfing community or, or culture. Um, and I guess that's the, the very nature of when things are individualistic. Yeah. It, it, it really breeds ego. It breeds a sense of being special, um, being different, and and these are are phony values. They're they're just like, they're super toxic. Yeah,
1: and I find it funny, you know, like um, that if you call someone out on something, like, you know, just say you're out at a certain surf spot and I'm all for a really famous great surfer coming out and, and surfing and showing, like just actually watching how good they are and just going, wow, you know being a part of that and just watching it. But if they're coming out and they're snaking and they don't even need to because they're that good anyway, they can just get whatever wave, you know, that comes to them. And then, you know, you might say something, hey, mate, you know, you've paddled inside me three times. And and then some person that's not even, you know, the famous surfer sticks up for the famous surfer. (laughs) And you're just like, what? Are you his minder or are you like... This guy can talk for himself, but I know I'm just calling him out, like going, you know what? We can all get four waves each. I don't want to sit here and watch you get ten. Even though you're a great surfer, I don't. Like, we're all out here. We are all just need our four, and then we go in and we're all happy. It's like that pie, you know, we don't the big corporations or the big companies will take <laughs> the whole pie instead of giving it just, a, well,
0: yeah. I just want a little piece, mate. These you fucking know? wave capitalists, these <clears throat> wave yeah. cronies
1: just. So it's just, I don't know. Is, and there's a lot of, I think it's changed too now. And, and I guess from where I've come and I guess from where you've come, it was, yeah, be a good surfer, be a good footy player, be a good whatever you do, but don't act like you're good. 100%, man. Just be understated and just. You know, you know, you know, you can play football, or you can know, you can box, or you know, you can paint good, but it doesn't entitle you to be rude or not nice to
0: another person. Of course, and I think that's uh, that's kind of a, the nature of growing up in the city. You've got people from all these different tribes who specialize in all these different things, but it's it's irrelevant because yeah, you might be good at football, but old mate's good at fucking bombing trains with his graffiti can, and old yeah. mate's good at doing ram raids, and old mate's fucking. You're good at surfing or whatever but it, it's a, uh, it's largely irrelevant like you don't identify so hard with you know there's not whole towns built around graffiti and there's not whole towns built around and I, and uh, I think
1: that's also sorry to cut you off is like that's society's um, value what that they put on sports people and maybe not um, valuing the people that are a police officer or a teacher or a nurse or the people that actually... Exactly. You
0: know, so there's this star... They're the real heroes. Worship, Not, yeah, not of, the guy fucking doing a mad cutback. It's it's the Ambo who's, you know, breathing life into people Yeah, who, you know, funnily enough, a couple of my mates are Ambos uh, from where I grew up and don't surf well and get treated like shit in the water. But they're fucking the most... Uh, heart and soul people in the community. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah look, and, and, and I and I guess there's people that are really good at what they do and there's no ego and they're just down to earth and you meet them. There no, I just went on a job for a feature film just finished two days ago. Georgie Parker was there. The most level, like unaffected, like nice, you know, like she could come into the, the set, the film set and be thinking, yeah, I've been on this show I've been on this show but she was like oh what's your name blah? and it was funny I, like I was doing behind the scenes and they asked me one, uh, one night oh could you drive uh, Georgie home and I'm like yeah okay and so I drive her and she's like I said oh where do you live and she goes oh Balmain I said yeah I spent a bit of my youth around Balmain and I said oh so I'm driving home the second most famous woman to ever come from Balmain and she looked at me she goes, who's the first? And I said, Dawn Fraser. And she goes, you got me. Ah. But so unaffected. just re- like, And she'd be talking to people on set. And as soon as action starts, you know, the, the call of action, she switches on, totally professional, nails every scene. But was just like a breath of fresh air as a person around the set. Amazing. So gets, you, sometimes you get these situations where you see somebody at the top of their game or really good at their craft, so unaffected, just really humble and nice and grounded and, yeah, it's refreshing.
0: <laughs> They're the smart ones for sure. I mean, believing your own highball or believing the hype that others put on you is, is just yeah. toxic. Well, it's, it's pretty
1: shallow and, yeah. And, you know, I, I guess the time that, you know, we were growing up, and it's a bit of an Australian thing and I get it, you know that tall poppy syndrome. Don't be too. You know, don't. My dad was always don't get a big head. You know, even though I've got a big head physically, I've, I don't have a big head. You know, I don't be a big head. But um, I guess now it's changed because now, like back in the day, it was all um, you would get other people singing your reward, uh, your um, value or whatever through a paper or through whatever. You know, because it was journalists would come and the the local paper or the local television station would say, oh, this guy's doing really good work. He's a good doctor and they'd come and do a story on you. But now with social media, everyone's their own editors and TV stations for themselves. There was no such thing as a social influencer when we were kids. Is that even a thing? I don't, you know what I mean? Like I still, to me it's an influencer. I think it's a sickness. (laughs) It's like, a, you know, I don't.
0: It really is.
1: Do I really want to get up every day and post about myself? I find it really...
0: Anxiety-provoking, you know, man. You, yeah, you know, and open I struggle. you up to so much judgment. It's
1: yeah, dumb. I know. Or, you know, whatever. But just even just um, patting yourself on the back to go, you know? That's such a
0: weird concept, man, it is. isn't it? It, it? The whole concept of social media and Instagram and putting photos of yourself excelling is fucking odd to me. And so... Uh, contrary to the culture I was raised in, like big up on yourself was just not done ever yeah. under any circumstance. Yeah. It like, was like immediate ridicule. You yeah. fucking and I, and, and I get it. Like, yeah,
1: totally, totally. And and I get it. Like some people go, well, if you don't do it, Mick, who's going to do it? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, it just doesn't feel comfortable for me. It's not a natural thing. But for me to tell someone else's story and put my film out and try and sell my film, yeah, because it's a product. I'm not really saying oh, hey, this is what I had for breakfast. This is me eating my breakfast. This is now defecating my breakfast. You know what I mean? Like I don't, you know what I mean? All those pictures of my dad. They never you know have like, the defecating the breakfast, yeah, but they should. Oh, they should. they um, should. You know, the story, like what I'm doing, whereas I can justify putting out the film and going, hey, buy the film because I've got to sell it. And But it's really more about the people because you're not watching it going, oh, this is about Mick. This is about addy this is about Heath josky this is about wayne lynch this is about you know glenn casey this is about you know the boys down at shippies it's a, you know it's about marty paradises it's about all these different people that's their stories i'm just facilitating that so i can justify that but i've struggled to yeah here's me um yeah
0: i don't know it's yeah. just uh, I, I don't know Well, hopefully your product's good enough that you don't have to do that and i mean far out i don't know if Werner Herzog's got an Instagram account. I'm I'm guessing he doesn't, but uh, he doesn't need one because his his films are that good. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, far out of – I don't want to give you tips on how to run a social media uh, empire because I don't really know. But I guess, (laughs) like, you know, I I think these films are high quality and people just need to actually see bits and pieces of the product. And I'm sure it's – I think
1: the struggle too also this day for – An independent filmmaker, possibly, you know, whether it's surfing, I'm into into surfing, Um, because the big companies now it's part of their advertising budget, and to put out contents, and there's so much content on the internet each day, you could watch a new surfing clip each day. It's really hard for people like myself, or you know, whoever Andrew Kidman or whoever that comes out with a film that they've put two years into, and go, well, look, for me to put this out. I'm going to charge $40 because they've got to pay for the duplication or they've got to pay for the DVDs and they've got to pay for the, the book if it comes with a book. And for their time, for that period, people don't want to pay for that because everything is so instantaneous and for free on the internet mm. these days that there's that bit of struggle. So, you know, I think people would like to see the films. They'd most probably watch them go, oh, yeah, that was really cool. It's maybe not my style because it's not, you know... Blow and tail on every wave, and it's not high energy. But if you want to listen to, you know, see stories, but I don't think it gets in some. Some people are expecting things for nothing, so they Mm. don't even want to pay.
0: Yeah, I mean, I spent seven bucks last night on renting outdated children, and yeah, it it just made me realise why am I not doing this more often? And I think you're right. It is because you get a lot of shit for free, but. Uh, you know back in the day we were very used to renting videos out from yeah, yeah. Know, video easy or civic video or whatever it was and like you know you'd always cough up two dollars or five bucks on it on a film yeah. so it should be no different and you know you, you get the reward in these are heartfelt films and, um, you, don't,
1: and you don't even have to drive down exactly for a parking spot and Some then get in clicks. there and go rent it out you know and then yeah. you. Gotta wait and then it's not there night. sometimes. Yeah. There. yeah. Oh yeah, we'll rent it on Tuesday night because it's you know because everyone'd go. Remember the video stores? Friday, Saturday night, you couldn't move fully. People would get their takeaway and then get a video, and you'd go,
0: "Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna get."
1: No, it's got the little ticket in it. Rent it <laughs> out. Devastation. <laughs> so yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm being watched or something. You know.
0: Yeah, and what you're paying for when you pay for these films is you're paying for yourself you get inspiration, motivation, you get to feel something in your heart. Like, you know, a lot of the shit you see online, it's just surf porn and you feel nothing watching that shit Mm. and fuck, the more of it I watch, the more it starts to annoy me. It's the same old crappy formulas and the the new whiz kid doing the new fucking cheese whiz like to fucking some hip track, like, you know, whatever, it's always going to be there in surfing, I guess, but, um, you know, it's a shame that these films the the narrative like core surf culture uh explorations have been pushed underground by the glut of shit uh instantly gratifying Mm. content
1: yeah well thanks for understanding like you know because it's not just me and i grew up on watching all those you used to have to actually buy there was no online content you would buy a vhs yeah Mm. you'd buy Sonny Miller's Rip Curl Search. You know, I just grew up on those watching Tom Curran just be the most stylish, best ever. Frankie Oberholzer. Um, Some of the old Jack McCoy, like, you know. um, Morning of the Earth, like, Brooke Sylvester's movies. You know, they were just...
0: Uh, they were opuses, like all of these things were feature length, yeah, and that years had gone into making them, and, and it was uh, an undertaking of passion and love and hardship, and you know probably thousands of yeah. lives were lost in the process of making them. Like they had to travel to all corners of the planet on these the wild rusty,
1: junkets. It was the old rusty, rusty films and hot buttered, and you just there was there was a lot of personality in the styles of surface that you you, you would were evident to me back then. because So uh, you would look at somebody like Terry Fitzgerald riding his own craft with the Martin Worthington sprays, which to me was just like, oh, my goodness, blowing my mind. And then looking at Wayne Lynch, you know, a day in the life of Wayne Lynch, him on his single fins that he was shaping and just going, man, they're totally different surface, both at the top of their game. And then you'd see Jerry Lopez and then you'd see somebody else, Buttons, and they all were... Their styles of boards were reflective of their personality and the way they wanted to surf. And then you would see them on land and they were all really different. I think now it's just become a bit more, because it's a a commodity and a sport, there's an end game. So they're trying to get to that end game. So they get refined and homogenized and pasteurized and whatever else. Whereas the surfers back then were just doing it. I watched that busting down the door uh, a few weeks ago down... A couple of months ago, down at Lennox. Oh yeah, I was there. Sean, oh, you were there. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was there. How uh, wild was that, Sean yeah, Thompson? in Sean the flash. Thompson Crazy. and Rabbit. Yeah. And that unbelievable. I'm, I read all of that in the in the magazines back in the day, and knew the backstory, but to actually read read like the heaviness of it, what they went through to, you know, to get paid to surf, but there was still those personalities, and you know, I think when you watch these vignettes or little features on people um, and they're maybe not as well known or if and if they are, you get a bit more depth. It's just not surface fluff. You know, you're getting in depth. You, you get behind the person you see and, you know, you, you look at those guys, Jim Banks, Chappie Jennings, Gary Elkerton, like Kong back then, you know, like Kong's Island was classic. I remember going, driving to... McCoy surfboards at Avoca, Cape Three Points Drive going into McCoy factory and standing there and watching performers, Bryce Ellis and Sanger. And then you'd go down the point and see those guys, like Sanger doing the big floaters, and just be going, Oh my goodness! And those that imagery and
0: just that lifestyle childhood memory to to see the film in the bay and then walk out and see one of the stars doing his signature. And they had the they had the
1: the McCoy single, like my first board was McCoy single fin, and I I never had a lasers app. My best best mate at school did, Matt Hoban.
0: But he was spewing on that purchase.
1: Well, he liked it because he he used to like to slide, whereas I didn't like to slide, and I still don't. You know, I don't like to feel weightless. I don't want my boards doing anything weird. So hence getting a board off Wayne Lynch or Jim Banks. You know, um, it's just. There was, I think, there was a lot more personality and depth, and you get that in these films. I hope that people are making. But to get that, you need to pay a bit of money because you know, like, I live a good life here now. I grew up in Western Sydney. I live here with my wife and three kids. Um,
0: It's a beautiful life when it's not flooding.
1: Yeah. When there's well, not water coming no. in the house. Yeah. <laughs> At the start of the year, it was different. But, you know, we, we've worked hard and we've scrimped and
0: saved. and Still we, working as a removalist, lugging, uh, lugging yeah. grand pianos up staircases in yeah. Lismore. Well,
1: that's good because you get a heavy lift if you, you know, you get... Get the a, technique right. Or you get a, an allowance, you get a, a bonus... A little bit of cash on the heavy lifts. If oh, is that right? Was, yeah, okay. a certain weight. So, so
0: uh, if you're a removalist out there, keep an eye out for the Steinways.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I'll put a plug out for Mullumbimby uh, Reliable Removals. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, we've worked hard, my wife and I, but we sort of timed moving up here. Well, um, bought our first house for 80000 on the Central Coast in 1996, moved up here in 2002, bought this place before it was... And we're on the outskirts. We're, you know, northern Byron Bay.
0: Mm. Oh, it's great. In, in such a great spot, I noticed that, uh, you know, when you cross over from Mullum into Billy Nugent, I was actually getting Siri to run some stats for me. And uh, there's uh, the, the statistic is, I think, thirty. Um, uh, there's a 30% drop-off in whinging as soon as you cross over <laughs> to the Billy Nigel suburb. And there's yeah. a, a 20% drop in... Uh, crackheads masquerading as hippies or is it hippies masquerading as crackheads i can't even oh, I figure it know. out anymore I, I, but it's kind of like main arm up here with better roads and yeah less well, crackheads That's yeah great. the um yeah
1: mylon is full-on at the moment like driving through there I, I often have to go there early in the morning to go to work and late in the afternoon to come back from footy training if my son's you know uh, or my daughters are playing and then um but the rest of the time, it's it's pretty busy these days. But you come over the hill here and we just timed it that we, we found this place. I hadn't even been in this valley. I'd been in Middle Pocket Valley, but not the Pocket Valley. And we found this place and it was always like going back to the western s- suburbs. I used to work at the Sunnybrook Hotel, which was near Warwick Farm Racecourse and I used to have to walk from Cabramatta Station every morning. And I'd walk past a lot of Vietnamese properties. And they had it wired. They'd buy two places. They'd pull down the fence in between and there'd be 15 of them living in there and they'd grow their own food, they have their rice, they did everything there. Hmm. And it was like my Polish grandparents, yeah? So when we bought this property, we've got the space for our kids to live here in the house and also in the separate dwelling and we've got enough space to grow food and capture water and do all the things that we need to do because I don't know how my kids are going to afford to live in the Byron Shire. Hmm. And that's just not Byron, that's a problem that most people would be thinking about as parents. Where are their kids going to live? I've got friends that lived, you know, I'm from Fairfield. My friends that still live in Western Sydney have had to go out to Penrith Heights, yeah? So, west of Penrith, like on the foothills of going to Katoomba. Mm. Geez, I bet
0: they're glad they're up there now, though. Fuck flood it, flooded all through there just recently.
1: But that's where they—that's the only place they could afford to mm. be around family. Luckily, my family moved to the Central Coast. And then, you know, I Central Coast was good when we moved there, but I could see the writing on the walls. There was more roundabouts than there was infrastructure. Um, and I could see that it was going to just become an extension of Sydney. So up here, we've got space. I can be at the beach in 10 to 12 minutes surfing uncrowded waves. Wow. Um, I can live this life. I'm blessed. Like it's it's good. You know, I I feel content. I've got three healthy kids and a beautiful wife, and I live here, so it's you know don't need much else. Only maybe if you buy a movie
0: <laughs> 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 or two. <laughs> buy a mixed movies, so he has to lift less Steinway pianos in Lismore. Yeah.
1: Well, I've had a break. I have just been on that film set for three weeks, so that was that wasn't physical. Oh, it was physical but um it's different sort of you know using your brain and creative but but now we get to go to tassie for the school holidays and hang out
0: that's right you got a little a little plot of land and a little shack down there
1: yeah a little um excuse me little self-sufficient shack like it's a tiny home um we built it when we were travelling around australia when i was filming and what well i didn't leave on the trip to film i took my camera gear And I had some work for Patagonia at the start and and white horses and a few other little bits and pieces, rip curl, on the trip. But once we got to Tassie, we'd been there in 94 with my wife and we hooked up with some old friends and um, we ended up minding some properties for people. Um, And then we were just like, we took two months traveling around mainland Tassie, but then we found the spot where we've built. And... We bought the land for, like, you know, I don't know where you could buy land for that cheap anywhere in Australia. Looking at the ocean, 500 metres from the ocean. So then we built the shack off-grid for the same amount of money as we bought the land for. Um, And then we got it valued not long after because my wife was a bit freaked out. Maybe she thought maybe we'd spent too much money. But the real estate goes, oh, give me first offer, yeah, to buy it. So I thought, okay. And he gives me a price and I go, well, it's worth way more than that if he wants to buy it first. yeah. So it's just a little tiny home. It's off-grid, you know, gravity-fed tank, fire pits, just outdoor outdoor kitchenette when, you, when the weather's good, indoor when you have to, a little combustion stove. The kids are upstairs in the loft. There's a little ladder for them. Wow. There's lots of all little hidey holes to, for storage, you know surfboards under the bed, you know, it's, it's all off, runs off one solar panel, which I wired up and some mates helped build. Uh, one, of them, one of my mates has since died, Anthony Wells, he did all the rock work and he was the main builder, but my mate T-Bone is now my, in essence, caretaker. So contacted him last week, so we're coming down in a week, he clears the gutters, he opens it up, airs it, cleans it all up for us, brush cuts, we pay him. It's ready to go and it doesn't cost us anything except for the land rates because it's not, you know, I turn the toilet off when we're not there, I'll turn it back on when we get there. The solar panel's all charged, it's ready, you know, and we just get down there and, you know, my wife works really hard as a school teacher, and I work hard, you know. And it seems like if we go down there for six weeks, it's it's 12 weeks of hard work before it to, to actually manage this place and get down there. But when we get down there, it's just literally, we're off grid, there's no TV, it's just sleeping in, it's getting up early if there's surf, it's going squidding, it's going for a dive, going for a swim, have a beer, uh, campfire, you know, little um, campfire stove, you know just whatever, just cooking off on on the fire and just keeping it simple. And then we come back for the next year and we're back into it. Yeah. Wow,
0: what a reset. And it's interesting, six weeks is precisely the time it takes for the brain to rewire itself. That's that, uh, okay. yeah, neuroplasticity. I mean, the, the first beginnings of changes in the neural networks takes yeah. six weeks. So, yeah, it's right on the button of a, of a full-on proper reset. And for your kids, that must be so important, mate, to not have the mind crack of Facebook and instagram in their face and like allow their dopamine receptors to reset and like that shit is is fucking our minds up in ways that we don't even understand yeah well Um, my
1: son my son's 13 he doesn't have a phone yet so he's he's you know but my daughters do but um we get down there and we might not have reception or you know we don't have enough we've got enough charge but we just try to keep it simple and we're basically just catching up on sleep and it's going to be pumping in the morning. Let's get up real early. And then if there's downtime, I'll spit some wood and we, we, we do some work on the block. And my, my son's like, Dad, it's it's really dark tonight and still let's go squid So I'll drop him down there and he squids and then we, he gets some and then the next morning we've got you know, calamari and chips for breakfast. And it's all, we've got no washing machine, so it's hand washing your clothes. It's just being really mindful of your water usage and when you're doing things. So it's all really season uh like weather-based yeah
0: yeah and that takes up the bandwidth of your mind but that is such a positive thing to be thinking about you know when you think about survival you're not thinking about all the other stupid shit that drives people mad and yeah it's,
1: it's you know sometimes people oh my coffee's cold and you know my bandwidth and it's like first world problems you know like perspective you know we the perspective that you get from talking to other people and 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 their situations and how they do things and and the stories and the trauma that they've been through and the death and whatever you know i I worked with a guy last week that comes from turkey and he was the assistant director and mate he was i called him good borat because he talked like borat (laughs) and uh and his name was kazim and he was such a not just a really nice human but i just said man you got really deep eyes, you know, like his eyes, and he told me some of the shit that he's been through. I was just like, okay, so not that I complained about the food. People were complaining about the food on the film set.
0: Mm. Oh, of course, can you go to a film set where people don't complain about? And the food? And I'm just
1: like, I don't. I'm not complaining about the food, mate. People are feeding me. I don't have to cook. And I'm. And he goes, yeah, I know you don't complain. And I said, and he it was just like, he he was staunch. He was like. Full she in between, scenes. oh sick, yeah, and Love full Qig, breathing, yeah. and he talked to me. He goes, and he did some cupping, some wet cupping on my back. Well, he was a freak, but the, his story from living in Turkey and working on film sets over there, and some of the stories he told me wasn't bragging. Just like, and, and him seeing people die from a really like hundreds of people in his town from a young age. I just went, well, oh, dude.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, one of the real enriching things about surfing is you, you travel around the world and you, you're mostly traveling through pretty poor joints. And one of the real takeaways I got, especially from spending years living in Indo, was, you know, I took so much away from the way they lived just as you took away from the way the Vietnamese lived, the way your Polish grandfather lived. And, you know, there's, I feel like the way we should be living here is, is more like... Second world, you don't want to be first yeah. world. Second world's fine, which is to say, you got good healthcare infrastructure, good roads, yeah. um, you got trustworthy police, uh, firemen, and, and yeah. ambos and that. But you grow growing your own food. You're not relying on on the man for too much, yeah. more than, more than just that basic infrastructure. Yeah. And, yeah. and and beyond that, you know, don't work your life to pay down the debt of a, a giant suburban McMansion. Like, I don't think there's much satisfaction in that kind of living and not only is there not much satisfaction in it, it's fucking destroying the planet. It's destroying yeah. your, your own body. Uh, it's, cre- it's destroying relationships. It, it's not a healthy way to live.
1: Well, I think, you know, early, early 70s, 80s, um, possibly we would have been classed as second world, maybe Australia, because it was achievable for everyone to have the great Australian dream, which was a quarter acre and a house, yeah, mm. with running water. And, and, and now... Like I was lucky enough to move here and timed it, you know. I own this, me and my wife own this place now, so we're we're doing good. But can my kids, um, so we now work for our kids. Everything we're doing is so they can have something. Um, try not to be that stressed about it all and try not to overcapitalize. you know, like just, I don't need a jet ski, I don't need to... Go to Bali every year on a trip and go here and have the new Nike shoes and the new iPhone. You know, I got an iPhone six. I I'd hey ride my surfboards until they die, and I just make do. Mm. And that's how I think you get places. You just make do. I remember my first watch lay by forty five dollars. Divers watch. You know, I paid it off for six months. Go in there, and the lady most probably hated me because every week I'd walk in there with a dollar twenty or a dollar fifty. And give her some money, and she'd pull out the docket and write on it. And I'd go, oh, Can I have a look at my watch? And I'd see her roll her eyes, and she'd go, Okay, love. And she'd show it to me, and I'd put it on my wrist, and I'd look at it, and I'd just go, How cool is this? I'm going to, you know, that was because you, my grandfather never bought anything unless he had the money to buy it. Mm. So now we're all living on this That's it. fake credit and credit these fake promises and nah. these fake worlds that mm. we don't really own.
0: One of, one of the greatest gifts of, growing up poor is that you learn to live without money. And uh, then when you have money or, or you realize that you don't need money, like really what you need yeah. money for only is uh, but, to, to not be in debt. Like yeah. it's all about not being in debt and, well, that's and, and, and living and, within your means. And, and, and now, a lot of people now, don't get that yeah. lesson.
1: And now we're there. So it's like everything else is for my kids because, you know, they're now saying that you need a million dollars, you know, your retirement I'm just going I don't need that much but now it's almost like okay well we don't need that much but we need to not necessarily work our lives for our kids but give them we've sent them to a good school it's up to them to work hard to get themselves a good mark so they can get a good you know step a, a good head start in life to have options I think if you if you have options in life yeah you can And choices, you can make the right choice. But if you don't have the options, then you don't have many choices. So Mm. you're sort of limited in what can happen. And when you go to those second world countries, you see the community, you see how it's really subsistent and self-sufficient and it's all interrelated and there's bartering. Like I still barter with people now. Now when the the pandemic was on or just – no, actually it was just after the floods – This whole area shut down. Ten weeks, we didn't have internet. We were going, you couldn't use your credit card anywhere. People were freaking out. They couldn't buy stuff. We had cash because we've just always been cash people. And we could go in and people would go in and go, where'd you get that from? It's it's called money, mate. It's not Bitcoin or (laughs) credit, you know what I mean? It's actually like cash. You work for it and you get it and you give it to them and then, but it was a bizarre concept. this that, magical
0: piece of plastic that has special powers. You know,
1: like, and it was just pay for money and you just give it to them and then they just, like, you get what you wanted and we were, but a lot of people up here were, because they, there was no internet, so FPOS wasn't working and their credit cards weren't working and they just couldn't buy and they couldn't, yeah, and we buy in bulk and we were just, we were okay.
0: Cruising, driving 10 minutes to surf on crowded waves.
1: Yeah, I don't think there was much surfing going on there, but, because of the brown water because we're close to a river so right. but yeah in saying that when you go to bali and you go to these places and you see people with less they don't necessarily have less yeah they've got less stuff but they have less stress they have more happiness exactly there's more community that seem happier you see the smiles you get from people in bali don't get that of people walking down the street here when they get out of their Tesla. Exactly. They won't even smile at you. You say hello and they just oh, fuck off. He wants to rob me or something. You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: That's it, man. All right, well, we'll wrap it there. Thanks so much, Mick. Appreciate your time, yeah, man. Cool. And, uh, well, uh,
1: yeah, I'd like to thank Jed for interviewing me today and talking story. And um, I don't know, I think you might lose a few listeners after today. You might have been the least well-known person you've interviewed or something i don't know
0: oh don't know about that i mean that's <laughs> not what we're here for anyway you might see
1: a, a st- your, your stats dip a bit but yeah no i just appreciate the time and the energy for you to drive out here and just the chance to talk and um yeah it's been great oh,
0: that's an incredible story man incredible films incredible life and mean, um, you've ticked two of the, the boxes that are my most favorite which is uh rugby league and surfing so
1: yeah, okay one question for you what team what's your team
0: Oh, the Chooks, mate, the Latte sippers, yeah. I was gonna say you yeah. don't get the choose in my opinion. And, you know, to be honest, like when I first started going for them, which was the early nineties, they were fucking rubbish. They were the years of uh Gary Freeman, Craig Salvatore, Nigel Gaffey, uh cricket's yeah. And the first game I ever went to I walked in behind Brett Kenny and uh who they were playing Parramatta at the SFS, got beaten forty to two, the Chooks did that yeah. day. And wasn't actually until uh, Fittler came in 95, 96 that they, they got good. Spent my whole life playing in South Sydney though, South Juniors yeah. Comp and uh, Union for Randwick. And uh, yeah, so very familiar with that part of the world too. And, you know, mum goes for Souths. And, uh, you know, I always had a soft spot for Souths, especially when they got booted. Yeah.
1: Do you know uh, Luke Daniels?
0: Yeah, of course, mate. I was actually going to wear his, his T-shirt here. Yeah, I had
1: uh, mine on the other day. Uh, we, we, we often have a bit of banter because he's a Chooks fan. Um, mm. Supporter and I go for the bunnies. so he is, you know, yeah.
0: Support. Um, every, you know, everyone I went to high school with goes for, shout, yeah, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's oh yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, as they've gotten stronger as a team, I've become uh, less enamoured by them yeah. as they've become a genuine threat, and yeah. uh, definitely no love lost between myself and certain uh, sections of the community down there at Maroochydore. So, yeah, I just kind of. When I watch Souths lose, I just picture all their faces and it makes me very happy.
1: <laughs> well, it was funny. Well, I'm a para junior, but my uh, dad went for Souths and his dad went for Souths, so I had no choice.
0: Right. Yeah, you and don't he, get to choose. That's, that's, well, that's, that's it. That's, just, that's the way I look at it. Your team's
1: your team. And yeah. I remember he, my dad was actually meat carting with a old 1970 Souths player, Trevor Reardon, so... I wonder if he's Met related
0: him. to that. There's a there's a famous Reardon family from down there at Maribra Boxes and and whatnot.
1: Yeah, don't know. But I played against his nephew Jared Reardon. So yeah, he played for Souths. But yeah, it's just you don't you don't get to pick your team. Nah, it is what it is.
0: Nah, and I mean, I tell you, you dude,
1: just can't change your team.
0: And you can't change your team either. There's a guy I it's work with madness.
1: at the it's at the madness. removalist. He's um. Gone through a bit of a hard life, and one of his things, as being a recovering alcoholic, yeah. was to change everything. Mm. And he's like, "So I went from the Tigers to the Panthers, and I said, no, nah, mate, you can't change your team.' So we give him a bit of shit at work. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I'll cut people some slack when the those merged franchises. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that's a bit weird. And you know, also people up here. They're generally lost when it comes to rugby league. I don't know who you follow when you're from up here. You've you got to pick someone. You can't go for the Titans. Like, that's fucking well, They do, shorts. and
1: then they're disappointed. Of
0: course. It's an awful,
1: awful franchise, that one. Well, it always has been. The Gold Coast have really struggled, where they should actually do good.
0: Yeah, it's a solid catchment up here. I mean, uh, yeah, Southeast Queensland, Northern Rivers. I mean, so many good players have come from here, but just not gone to the Titans. Like, you know, Matt King's from... Mm. Uh, Lismore, I believe Yeah, um, well, I played Lismore with Casino. his brother, Chris King Right Yeah, okay, and, wow and
1: his,
0: and he, he, Oh yeah, at Mullum
1: No, nah, he's um. I don't know where he's exactly from But they're from, he was running the the Lennox Hotel till a few years ago so But he, he, he a went he big went from, bald head bloke? Nah, he no, well, last time I seen him fully had his hair But he, he played He played first grade for power He was the wow. Salomon when I was working at the club
0: no way. Yeah. And you actually made a comeback for Mullenar uh, as when uh, was that? Last year. That was last year.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, fifty-one. I had a few. Um, I've I've coached my son. He's a keen footy player. He goes. He goes all right. And um, I just I, I could see him rolling his eyes when I'd say stuff sometimes. And there was a guy, my boss at the Removalist Macca, Adam McKenzie, like a local legend who played for the Burley Bears and played for the South Queensland Crushers oh, or yeah. Chargers, one of those teams when mm. they were a, a franchise um, with another mate, Simon Kane. they He was playing and he can hardly walk. And I'm, he's younger than me. I think he's only 42 and uh, I'm 52. And I, I said, fuck Macker, if you're playing, I'll play. And he goes, you serious? I went, oh, uh, and then I just saw his eyes light up and he goes, "Come on, let's go register you. And I was literally thinking he would, like, forget. Mm. And then he goes, don't forget, we're playing this other, Mick, because I was coaching his daughter that day because his daughter played in my son's team, Mia. And um, I'm like, oh, I hope, I was hoping you forgot, Maka." So I didn't have a mouth guard. So my son plays up at Seagulls, up at Tweed. And then I... My wife goes, oh, I'll meet you at home. I said, no, I've got to go to shops. What are you going to the shops for? And I said, I've got to get a mouth guard. She goes, what are you, mate? And I go, I'm playing footy this afternoon. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What are you doing? So I get there and I thought, they'll oh, put me on for five minutes, you know. Maybe not even. So I get there and I ring up the coach and I say, I'm running late. I've just got the mouth guard. So I'm ready to go. I'm running out. And as I'm running out of the sheds to go warm up, throws me a jersey. And I look at it. It's got number four. And I go, Mate, that's the wrong number. It needs a one in front of that. Yeah. Goes no, you start in the centres, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. So we're playing Byron, and Byron. So this is, has, this is this is Mullen
0: versus Byron. That's the the derby up here.
1: Yeah. Mm. And um, on that day, they were a real like uh, young local team, so 19 year olds and everything. And I'm playing in the centres, and I look at this guy, He's six foot two across from me, and the coach is going, "We're defending, we're defending close, you know, like compress." I'm looking at him going, I don't want to compress, mate. I do not want this guy outside me, yeah? Because as soon as he's outside me, he's just going to run straight around me. So I did what the coach said. First time he got the ball, he got the ball on the outside of me and he just went, he's six foot two and running like 10 seconds, you know, Mm. 100 metres in 10 seconds, just goes. So I didn't let him come around to come under the post. Yeah. (laughs) And I said to the coach, he was on the field and I said, mate, I'm not letting that guy get outside me again. Okay, you guys slide across, and I'll push him back in. So he d- he didn't get around me for the rest of the game, but it was you know, it was a bit embarrassing. I'm 51, and I hadn't played or for 18 years or something. But I, I I made a few runs and a few tackles. I didn't drop off any tackles or do anything really bad. And uh, my son's like, you know, so I actually did it for my son. Mm. Really was to just. And then I ended up playing. We ended up. I played eight games because it was a bit of a short season because of COVID, and. Um, at one stage, I was leading tri-scorer.
0: Wow. Which
1: was... Unbelievable. One of the boys goes, you know, you're leading try scorer And I said, doesn't say much for the guys I'm playing with because I'm trying to G him up. Like, yeah. you know, you guys are young, mate. You should be scoring the tries. But, yeah, I ended up playing and I was sore for four months. But it got to the end where my son is like, man, you beat that guy and you palmed him off and what about that tackle? So it was just really, I survived the season. I didn't do any major damage. Had one last, uh, and it was really my my wife always wanted me to play with my kids, so they all all my kids got to see me play. So I retired when I was thirty three. I had my first kid when I was thirty three, so they didn't see me play. So she it was more about her and my son, and I did it. It's been embarrassing at some stages. It was it was good, you know. I contributed. I wasn't you know fully like oh my goodness I was contributing to the team and, and some of the young boys said, you know, we enjoyed playing with you, we learned some stuff and, you know, it was good. And I didn't majorly injure myself but the main thing for me was just that banter that I have now with my son and he now respects me a lot more when I say something about league. He goes, and, and you know, he'd come off and I'd hear him sometimes yelling. Like I scored a try once and you know, I could hear him, oh, God, Dad, good try, you know, and that, that to me was the world, just wow. seeing that. And then you get in the car after the game. He goes, no, it's good try, Dad, you know, and just that banter. Geez, you're a bit slow. Like, why didn't you make that break? I go, son, mate, I was buggered, you know, and he'd laugh. And, and now there's that respect and I can now talk to him about footy and he's totally on board. I'm not like the whining old dad that, you know, the fat old guy is. Sort of goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> just a bit of, you know what I'm saying? Because you get to be that, you know, they love you when you're really young. You're everything. And then they get to teenagers and they sort of think you're embarrassing and, you know, and it comes full circle. But at this stage for me and him to sort of you should try this on the field or maybe you should do that or, you know, instead of him rolling his eyes,
0: he sort of looks at me now and goes, yeah, cool. So that's that's why I played. Jeez, you must have been impressed when you scored that match winner. Yeah. in the corner well, oh, we'll put the video up on our Instagram we'll, we'll put a couple of these clips up oh, uh, from your playing days but that is a that was a cracker I must watch that 50 times yeah, game was up. in the uh, game was in the balance and the yeah, ball too. slung yeah, against... wide here and you, you ran a, a hard and committed line it was a wild line I was uh, very well, upright know, with that a, signature a, style of yours It was, there just,
1: was a split second there where I looked for my winger yeah was nowhere to be seen, so I just, <laughs> mate, I'm, I'm going to give it to the younger winger, and he wasn't there. So I just went oh, okay, and there was no other line. Like I literally had to just, you know, and um,
0: it was an unlikely line because uh, you know you kind of just ran an arc, and you had two guys who had you well covered. So it was pure physicality that got you to try, and you fucking flexed the two poor buggers. Okay. If, you watch,
1: if, I, if you watch the full replay, that guy didn't get up for a few a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I, I, I don't know if you watched the video I actually because I'd scored a try earlier that game and that was the second one. And Unbelievable. I literally had this thing in my head. I said to the boys, if I score a try I'm gonna walk straight off the field. Cause I'm done. Mm. And I scored the first one and I didn't because the sheds were down the other side and my first thing was and all the first graders were there because i was only playing reserve grade all the first graders were there and they were all cheering my first thing was i want to walk straight off and into the sheds and i didn't and then i actually put my hand up like like i want to come off but they didn't even like come over to me and ask "Hey mick do you want to come off they just left me on there so i was wishing i had the balls to actually just walk straight off because it would have been funny yeah. I would have come running back out, but I just wanted to do <laughs> that. And I thought, no, nah, that's a bit showponing. So, yeah, it was funny. That's
0: so good, man. Leaving nothing in the tank. Uh, a life well lived and, yeah, entertaining to relive it all with you. Thanks, man. Yeah,
1: mate. Champion. Thank you.